Morning Project Presents. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Generic Video Game Podcast. The podcast with a name that's malleable, fun, marketable, and is anything but generic. Your ears are once again joined by myself, Anthony, alongside my one and only co host, who has no problem taking your heart and selling it on the black market for a copy of the Near Automata soundtrack. It's Vita Princess Molly. Welcome to episode 26. Yeah, I was. There was part of me, like, I feel so weird because I don't like. Like, you know my thing about buying, like, special editions, you know? Right. Like, I just don't do it. Um, and and then there's been, like, three things recently where I'm kind of like, I almost wish I had ordered those, and now they're gone. And you can't get them anymore. So, like, the, the near soundtrack, like, if you had ordered it, if you would pre-ordered it, you get the fourth disc. That oh, has I didn't all know the, that. Yeah, that has all the 8-bit versions of all the songs. Oh no! Oh no! Which you don't get if you get just now buy it, or if or if you get the digital versions, you don't get it with that either. So I think it was pre-order only. I'm not. Po- I might be wrong on that, but I know at very least you don't get it with the digital versions that are on Amazon, and iTunes. And by the way, it's funny because the Amazon price is like eight dollars more than the iTunes price. Um, for the physical set? No, for no, just for the digital version. Oh wow! It's it, it, actually I think it's like sixteen dollars and twenty three dollars, but it's like it's really weird that that would be such a difference in price. Hmm. Um, and then just like yeah, for that game, and then um, I don't know if it was well Persona. So uh, the the black box version of Near, like I almost kind of want that now because of the figure and everything, right? And like the, the art book looks, looks looks really neat, but of course it's like six hundred dollars now. $600 now on Amazon. Get out of here. Excuse it jumped up. Uh, this is so crazy. You know, I'm a sucker for buying all that stuff, and I'm always like, oh, this is going to go up. This is going to go up. The one limited edition I don't get. Did it really shoot up that high that fast? Let me see. Because last time I looked, I, I felt like it was that price. Because wow. um, I want to say it was like in a bracket of 180 or so off Square Enix Online. I looked like, I feel like two days ago. And so let's wow. see. The... Yeah, so that there's there's two the the buying options are there's two available, and one is five ninety nine, and one is seven twenty nine. That's amazing. Um, so there's that where I was kind of hoping it. I it's like I kind of wish I had gotten that after all because the figure does look neat and the art book looks neat. Um, and then I don't know if you heard this, but so Amazon had. The special edition of Persona Five. And I don't know if it was just only the Steelbook one or the entire set. It might have been the Steelbook. The Take one. Your Heart edition. Yeah. Is that okay. the, is that the Steelbook only? So there's this is a little tricky. So PlayStation Three, from what I can tell, only gets standard. You know, gets a physical copy, standard box. Right. And then PlayStation Four gets Take Your Heart edition, which has Steelbook and other goodies. And then the first print run, I dare say, there is a Steelbook edition where you don't have to get the Take Your Heart edition. Okay, yes, yes. Okay, yes. There's Steelbook edition, which is $60 as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's Standard Edition. And then I think it's Take Your Heart. So they were canceling some of the Take Your Heart orders for some reason. Wow. Wow. And nobody could figure out why. And then they ended up not only reinstating those orders, but the people who got their orders canceled are now getting that edition for free. What, time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's to make up for the all the 
worry and concern. Amazon's just giving them for free from what I've been told. Are they charging them the base 60 bucks for the game or they're just getting the game free in its entirety? I think they're getting the entire set for free. I can't believe that. Amazon. Wow. You know, the only reason it wouldn't completely shock me is because I always hear reports now of Amazon doing that a lot more. So maybe they're trying to repair their image in that respect. Um, I mean, because I don't think it's obviously everybody, but it says, remember when um, we're, con- we're contacting you about your order uh, for Sona 5, PlayStation 4, Take Your Heart Premium Edition. We- <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. We recently right. learned that we incorrectly canceled your order and sent you an inaccurate message about the goods being considered dangerous. That's right. That's right. They had something <laughs> about like how the, the package was dangerous. Uh, Persona 5 PlayStation 4 Take Your Heart Premium Edition is not a dangerous good. To help make up for your inconvenience, we have sent you a copy of Persona 5 PlayStation 4 Take Your Heart Premium Edition free of charge. That's amazing. So yeah, so people, the people who ordered and got it canceled, they're getting the, the, that whole set for free. Wow. Which I don't even remember how much it cost, but I yeah. think it was ninety. I want to say so. I want to say it was ninety, but um, I did, I did, I did order the PS3 version. So for your own personal collection, as of right now, you're doing PS3. Well, I I ordered that one because like I just have this feeling in my gut that it's going to be limited in copies. Right. Like I'm, I think they're assuming that they're not going to have a, sell a whole bunch of copies of the PS3 version, and you know I think we mentioned this before about how like with Gravity Rush Remastered, that was on Amazon. It was a physical copy, and then all of a sudden you found out that that was Amazon only. You know, and then it was like once it was gone, it was gone. Right. And I'm not saying that like Persona Three and Persona 5, Persona Five on PS3 is going to be Amazon only, but I just have this feeling. Yeah, it's going to be a roughie because, uh, and, and not to boast, I, I intend to get a PlayStation 3 copy as well. But I was doing some homework on that because I was thinking of our conversation. And the last first party PlayStation 3 title, I'm going off memory, not uh, Wikipedia right now, was October 2016. And then PlayStation 3 console production is coming to an end in Japan as we speak. Yeah. So, and obviously Persona 5 is a third-party title, so I don't think that's a stretch between the console ceasing uh, new production, the last first-party title coming out around five months ago, six months ago, that's very believable. The only thing I saw in an article somewhere, and I don't know if I read it incorrectly, I found this hard to believe, I thought I read something that the PlayStation 3 accessing the PlayStation Network would cease this August, but I don't believe that no that would um that last everything else i just said i'm 100 percent confident on but that last sentence i just said put an asterisk there yeah i I feel like i I heard something about that but it wasn't i don't think the ps3 overall i think it was okay else yeah because i was gonna say here's the deal wouldn't you just keep that up for a few years just based off digital downloads and classics alone i mean the fact that the vita is still running like i think the vita is gonna die in terms of uh you know online support before the okay i know i think i know what you're talking about it's playstation now support oh i'm sorry so they're, you know they're, what they're they might have done it. that fooled me i might have seen psn assuming and yes. network yes. and not now um so for vita ps3 and and just tvs they're stopping support of that come uh, august okay so that's what it is 
Hey, am I allowed to beg our fans if they want to send us something nice if they're in a giving mood? You know, we were talking about limited editions, and I, you know what I tell myself these days is because there's so many and so much you can't keep up with them all, so there's always next time. But there's a tub there is a title coming out this September I'd love to get my hands on, and that's Paprium. Oh yeah, that's, I'm so uh, I'm so so torn on that. Yeah, I really thought of you because within the last year you were telling me you got really back into uh, Genesis collecting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a little snippet here. I printed it out from the site because I'm 100 years old. And uh, after more than four epic years of development, Watermelon Games, side note, those are the people that did um, Pierre Solar, uh, is proud to present its new 16-bit game, Paprium, codenamed Project Y, a post-apocalyptic outrageous street brawler. Paprium has been crafted at Watermelon's Magical Game Factory using investors' votes and suggestions. Paprium has been developed by a team driven by true passion and 16-bit excellence. Year 8A2, somewhere at equidistant point between Shanghai, Tokyo, and Pyongyang, a megalopolis uh, rose from ashes of the shortest but most devastating nuclear war in history. Its name is Paprium. Brutal. Massive. You will fight your way through the city with Tug, Alex, and Dice. Redefine the word justice. Deal with the blue drug temptation. And more importantly, stay alive. It says, here's the important stuff that we want to hear, not the uh, story. Nothing's too grand for the ultimate Mega Drive Genesis game. Size Shock, 80 meg, plus 24 levels, plus 5 playable characters. Speed Shock, uncompromised 60 frames per second, advanced 16-bit visuals. Sound Shock, 48 uh, kilohertz by 24 channels, FM, PSG, DT, 128, blah, blah, blah. Uh, no detail compromise, one or two players, simultaneous gameplay, multiple game modes, three save slots for an unseen before brawler size. It gets a little bit more interesting here. Poprium is available for pre-order in two outstanding editions. Limited edition. Available in three regions, uh, Japan, USA, and Europe, or the classic edition black clamshell box with black grid design. Each edition includes the original 80 meg game cartridge, a full color instruction manual, quality box, multiple goodies, and extras. Game is compatible with both PAL and NTSC, original Mega Drive Genesis game system. Game is region lock free. Before I get to the last of these, the... uh, limited edition here i want to throw a side note out here i was looking at their q a on the site and there was something that i thought was very interesting now the last thing i need is to get another system or to do something stupid and and so here's here's my take i'm gonna wait for a playstation 4 digital download or something like that the only reason i make an assumption like that was due to pure solar did did that get digital versions later yeah okay yeah because i have it on ps3 and ps4 believe it or not because of cross by and it also hit xbox as well um the thing is, though, when I was looking at the q and you know, for a fleeting moment, I said to myself, you know what? In my town, if I was, like, desperate enough, let's say I was stupid enough to try and get a pre-order in on this, uh, you know, if they had some in stock in the next couple months, right? I said to myself, well, I can buy a Retron or something, right? That's, you know, they have all these new classic units that are out there that play everything under the sun. According to their Q&A, if I, and double-check this, people, it says no, it only runs on the original Mega Drive hardware. And it said they made a statement like it, the other units out there don't have the guts, the internals to run it. Yeah, but well, I found that. Do you, I mean, I, 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 hard- I know why, yes. Okay, why is that? Because it actually has extra hardware in the cartridge. 
So remember, no, remember, that, remember, like, no, and you're um, correct. You're correct. I believe this does have a special. What is it like? The, was it MMX chip on the NES? So, what What was the chip that they used for like? I think later Mega Man's. Uh, uh, yeah, and I the one that I remember from my memory is the one that Sunsoft used in Batman. Yeah, I think there's that too, and then of course there was the one like Super FX, but supposedly it's something right. like that where, or um, a closer co- you know comparison I guess would be Virtual Racing on Genesis which had right. a, a chip in it to, to power the graphics. So supposedly there is some sort of like hardware piece in the cartridge as well. Mm. And that's where I think, from my understanding, is... Well, my understanding is basic emulators can't emulate it because they, they're not emulating that hardware as well. So that answers my next question. So all of those Retrons and fancy... Well, but, I are... mean, I would think the Retron might be able to because... You're still using the cartridge at that point, right? Or are you not using the cartridge? I think the problem is, like, in order to play it, you have to be using the, this cartridge that you buy. Like, you can't be using a, a, a digital file, you know, ROM to run it. Right, right. As I break my setup. Yeah. That's what, um, that's, that's what I was trying to figure out. I figured you would know the answer to that. Uh, and then lastly on this uh, Poprium... This is crazy. I don't know if you saw this. There's a Grand Stick 3 edition, uh, expanding the experience to be released with the game, the Grand Stick 3, the ultimate arcade stick to be available in a limited edition optimized for Paprium, professional-grade arcade stick with high-quality Sanwa and Watermelon Games customized switches, high-quality switches, Sanwa Cross WM, 4-direction joystick, 8 buttons, dual connectivity with Mega Drive and Genesis and USB, state-of-the-art casing and finish, Aluminum, stainless steel, and acrylic. Each edition includes the 80 meg cartridge, full manual, blah, 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 multiple goodies and extras, yada, yada, yada. Poprium purchase. Pre-order the Poprium limited edition now for $89. Worldwide shipping included. Limited production run only for Mega Drive. Genesis estimated shipping date September 16th, 2017. Extra. The first 1,988 purchases. That's 1988. Gets Paprium Manga Volume 1 included with their purchase. Obviously, 1988 paying homage to the original year the Mega Drive released in Japan. It's it's a really weird thing because, like, you know, so you said that there was the Japanese version, the American version, the European version. But I think what's a little bit confusing at first is that those versions only are relevant to the, the case. Because the game cartridge works on all models, from my understanding, the game cartridge... Yeah, so it must have a specially cut... They must... Right. The groove must be set, because as you remember, the Genesis carts... I think if you have a Japanese Mega Drive cart to run it on Genesis without a proper converter, you have to saw off the ends? Well, yeah. No, so we had to do is, like, there's two little tabs, and I I know because I actually did this to my Genesis. There's, um... So the Genesis cartridges were kind of on the edges. They were round all the way around. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the American versions, on the back side of the cartridge, they had little indents because they had added two little tabs into the cartridge slot. And I mean, like when I say tabs, I mean just literally two really skinny little pieces of plastic up where those 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 like kind of doors were at. So if you cut off just those two little tabs, then Japanese cartridges would fit in fine. Um, but my understanding is American cartridges should fit in the Japanese one fine, so I'm pretty sure this is cut to be the kind of American style. Yeah, it's kind of more universal. Of cartridge. Yeah, but yeah. so what you're actually picking is, you're picking, do you want kind of Japanese style case, an American style case, 
or the European style case, or then which and this is the weird part is twenty dollars less gets you the quote unquote classic case. But if you look at it, like it it I don't like how it looks because that's that it doesn't look like any of the versions that were actually sold. Mm. And my understanding is that you're literally paying twenty dollars more just for a more authentic like slip in the case. <laughs> I don't know. I mean like I don't know if there's anything else different. Well, I'm hoping this sees light of day uh, not too long after its Genesis release uh, on modern consoles and maybe even something like a limited run-type game's physical disc release or something of that nature. I think see, the problem I'm having with this is because like, I, I, I was really, really tempted to order it because it seemed like just yeah. a cool thing. and I've had two, It looks awesome. I've had two problems, and the first is I've heard, I've heard Pierce Solder is okay, but not great. And I think especially with these kind of games, like if you think back to all these style of games that we had back in the 16-bit era, mm-hmm. like it was really easy to get these wrong, you know, and have them just be right. completely boring. And I've seen kind of like too many fan projects and things like that where they just didn't really understand how to keep it interesting the entire way through. So I think I'm kind of worried about if it's even going to be worth it or not. And then I think also for me, it's kind of like, I have a Genesis collection, but I don't have any kind of like these specialty rare games. Right. So I I don't feel the need as much as, say, if this were Vita coming out with a very limited edition physical version, I'd be much more likely to buy it because I have numerous games in my Vita collection, you know, that are like specialty releases like this. Right. So that's where like it's hard for me is that it's just kind of this one off thing. Like if it was super crazy like Neo Geo, that'd be something kind of different. And I, I love yeah. the idea. Just I don't I don't know if I can talk myself into buying it. I'm not sure. I didn't think eighty nine bucks was too out of line. It's it's but it's I think the problem is it's uh, not, but it's just expensive enough to have it not be an easy impulse buy. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's been so much stuff out on the market lately between mainstream releases, uh, d- video game vinyl coming out the wazoo. Well, so the, yeah, not even mainstream releases. I mean, like you look at now, like all these specialty editions, like limited run games just had three new games go up today. I know. Um, I can't even look. I'm not even looking. I am. I think I am eight bit just announced they're doing a special version of Hyperlight Drifter. Yep. Physically, I'm on their mailing list. Um, who was it? There's another company that has this like kind of list of games that that they're doing physically i'll have to find that so it's like there's there's so many of these projects now and there's like so many like it's kind of like remember how a few years ago how the kind of hipster vinyl era mm-hmm. kicked mm-hmm. in where like all the all the kids were buying like the vinyl music on vinyl and all of a sudden like you were seeing vinyl at like best buy and right and things like that and it was just so weird like we're kind of in that era for games now where it's just quickly gotten very cool to be doing these specialty physical releases. I mean, like anything, you think it's just going to be like they'll keep burning it until it burns out, or don't you think they need to kind of pick a little bit more of their shots? Or I, I think I think the problem's going to be, and I mean, I even think you've seen this in some ways with um, limited run games. Mm-hmm. It's just that sometimes it's it's really hard to get excited about the the games that are coming out because. So many of them are indie games, and those just can be very, 
like love it or hate it kind of stuff. Um, I had a question and I the thought escaped me. Um, mm, that's not good. It'll come back to me. I'm gonna find but, um, that. Okay, so Sig- signature editions. This is a company in the UK, and they just announced like there was that kind of um, like a 2D side scroller called Slain. It kind of seemed like a kind of heavy metal. I, ha- I I have that. Yeah, I have that down. Yeah, so they have a physical version they just announced recently, and then there was like Uncanny Valley that they they announced is coming soon, and they've got a couple other games like the, you know the Count Lucinor and Unbox. Um, I think I think because like the problem with like going to run games was when it first started it was really really neat because like it was so different, right? And I was buying all the games just because there was this you know. Um, it's kind of like oh yeah, if, you know these these physical games you'll never get again. But now they're just doing so many, and and there's so many that are just kind of like eh, you know, like I don't, I don't really need it. And I think when there were less releases, I think people like me were more apt to collect them all. Sure. But as and- soon as soon as you have like those one or two games that you miss, then that gotta collect them all breaks down yeah the completionist in you uh disappears and my thought came my train of thought came back to me don't you feel like now with limited editions and various announcements of that sort don't you feel like it's almost every day when you wake up and check gaming news sites and stuff it's like every day it's like something new like there's no downtime or break yeah i feel like yeah i feel like you know it used to be you'd see something every couple months or something unique and it's like God, it's like every day you wake up, there's like two or three, you know, it, it, I don't, it's a Fire Emblem or it's like near Black Box, it's limited run games, it's... Well, I was thinking about that too, which like with Destiny, like they just announced Destiny 2 stuff. Mm-hmm. And just, like I was looking at it and um, Collector's Bone, here it is, and... I want to get the information because just... I heard from the local GameStop, as you're looking that up, you're probably more educated and well-versed on it than I am. I'm familiar (laughs) with the comedic trailer and whatnot, but I was told from GameStop that they pretty much pre-sold out of all their limiteds already. Which is... Yeah, it's crazy. So there's... Okay, there's... I mean, this is is the great part, is that we now have to have news stories to explain to people what the different versions of games are, you know? (laughs) Like, like, like this is a serious news story we we have to keep doing. So there's, like, a digital deluxe edition for $100. There's a limited edition for $100. There's a collector's edition for $250, and this is the one. um, So it's it's got, like, a messenger bag, right? Mm. And... And just the way this looks, like, I can't imagine anybody using this. And it's just like, <laughs> who's going to use this messenger bag? And so, right. um, custom little bag that can be worn as a backpack or messenger bag, a 15-inch laptop, tablet sleeve. And then it's got, like, this is the part that just made me laugh. So it's got a Frontier kit featuring solar panel USB charger with built-in light, a paracord, and a solar blanket. And just, it gets to a certain point for me where it's kind of like, you're just looking around your house, like, like you're going to a party and you're like, okay, we need to take food. Like, what food do we have in this house that we can maybe take with us? You know? And you're looking like, oh, we got this bag of potato chips we never, we never used, you know? And we got this bottle of wine from a few years ago that somebody gave us and then we never, it just feels like these, these things a lot of times just are 
what just crap can we throw in here? Well, I'm going to say something. I'm going to, I'm going to tell a unique story. Not, I'm not being rude cutting you off talking about these unique items. Now, I need to make some things very clear before I say this story. Uh, I need to make it clear that this was only like one set of middle, per, middle people or vendor that I'm going to speak of. And it's nothing negative. Um, and I know that there's a whole wide variety of outlets out there and deals to be made and all that stuff. So now I don't want to sound like an idiot. But like when you get these limited editions, like whether it be back in the day, now, you know, there's working designs or whether you get these limited present day, like you get those beautiful statues or, uh, you know, you get those fancy art books. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you're like this, but in your head, you're kind of like, wow, this came from some magical place. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. wow, like, where did I get like a near automata art book? Kit? Like, wow, this is like, this magically fell like... A thousand of these copies magically fell from the sky in this like beautifully made box from some establishment that we have like from some wonder gaming wonderland, right? And several years ago, I was with uh, uh, Neil, GBGP alumni, Double Plus Good Games co-host, Bauer Graphics president, and his name will come up again later, actually. But a few years ago, we went to a uh, lunch in my area, fancy restaurant. And it was for one of the ghost recon. Well, okay. So let's time out. So we sat down with a couple guys and we were trying to get some like marketing related work and to do limited edition type ideas. Um, uh, I'm cutting out a lot of the fat and we sat down with a couple gentlemen, nice suits, you know, two suits, so to speak. And, but it's funny because they sit down, you, you talk to them, I'm there with Neil, I'm kind of like, uh, I actually did some of the gabbing, and uh, then they open up like this huge book, it's like a catalog, we'll call it, full color, and I don't like using the word tchotchkes, but I know Neil has used the word tchotchkes in the past and uses it at times, and it's not meant to be demeaning, but you go through and you see all these items, and it's kind of like you pitch ideas as to what you feel may fit the title, or what's offered and they can get X, Y, and Z done for X amount of dollars out in China. And, and you kind of put that puzzle together, so to speak from there and you do a pitch and, you know, and um, so anyway, the point of that story is that when we talk about limited editions or I look at limited editions now, it's like a magic trick, right? I've seen a little bit of the magic, how it's like, how it gets done. And it doesn't come from like this unicorn that leaps over a rainbow and craps out like gaming nostalgia out of nowhere. Like it, it, you know, it's, you look in a catalog, you try to get the right vendor, you see how many pieces you can put together. It totally sucks the life and fun out of the, the, the hobby I'm so passionate about. You know, if you ever want anyone listening, if, <laughs> if you want to lose your passion for gaming and lose the hype and the love like when you're like a teenager and young adult like that fire that was in me like when game fan was around and and like you just live for that magazine or you live for that next big japanese title coming and you lose sleep and like i you know i used to if i did this show when i was like 20 god i'd be like hype central but if you want that desire to just get killed you want to do one of a couple things. You want to get a job in the industry. Yeah. Or 
you want to see how some of these magic tricks are done. Now, I'm, you know, I'm giving a little bit of fun and humor in this. Like, I enjoy what I do with Molly. And I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting on the other end of the microphone. We obviously wouldn't do this if we didn't have a respect for each other, didn't get along. I enjoyed all the time. The stuff I did with Neil, and I'm still in contact with him, and you may hear my voice and his together again soon. That's that's different. That's a learning experience. I've known him for 15 years. He's an educated man, uh, done stuff in the industry. But once you get into the sales work, pitching to vendors, how the stuff is done, phew, the, you know, you're wishing for that copy of Paprium to come home, and you don't want to know how it was done, and you just wanted to hit your mailbox, sit down, and have some fun and game. But you don't know yeah, what, I, you don't know how the sausage was made. You just want to eat the sausage. <laughs> yeah. No, once you get into all that, and you know. It's it's just funny that you're saying that because I just think about back to um in one of my like like not working in gaming off seasons I worked for a law firm and I handled for part of my job was handling like all the the supplies and things like that and I just remember that the the company we had we ordered all our supplies from also had the section in their catalogs where it's like get your company name on this pin on this keychain on this mug on this tumbler you know and there was like all these different things where you would just slap your name on it and then it would supposedly be a special thing you know from your company that you'd give to somebody and like it kind of makes me feel the same way it's just like there's probably this big book of you know or you can have this this here's here's a bag we can add this color to it and it'll be a destiny bag you know and yeah it's just it i i think like even like the figures anymore. Like I don't feel like there's any real passion behind them, right? And then it's just okay. Figures an easy thing to throw in. The kids love the figures. Let's just design a figure and throw it in there. And there's exceptions to every rule. I think it comes down to a combination of things. Like anything in life, it comes down to who you're working with. Maybe the vendor who you've that you know who you've got behind it. There's a whole slew of factors, but for the most part, there's a lot of similarities. And uh, um, you know you, you're gonna there's gonna be a lot of repeat or common ground. But you're right, like. These days, it's always going to be like a statue, and not that some of them aren't badass, but like yeah. it's always going to be like a figure. I'm a, I'm an art book junkie, but you're either going to get that art book, or like come Call of Duty time, you're either going to get like night vision goggles, <laughs> you're going to get like some remote controlled like spy cam, you know, you're going to get like a grenade to blow up your neighbor's house. You're going to get something, you know, you're going to get like a camo bag and, you know, to, to, to put your 17 guns in it. But like, you're going to get that type of stuff, you know, every single, every single time. You know, I'm at the point right now where I do love select limited edition still. I do think that Nero Automata one would have been badass. It was very tough for me not to get in on it. It all comes down to timing. But I'm at this stage right now. Standard game is seven. Oh, excuse me, sixty bucks. I'm willing to go back to where we were five or six years ago. Pop you that extra ten or fifteen, seventy bucks. You give me the steel book and a nice manual, or like, even though that should be a given. I like the steel books. Give me cool art on a steel book, a nice like color manual, and maybe a map. I'll flip you the extra ten every time. Well, yeah, I was gonna say, but, um, like. One one example of I think where where it worked good is when in Japan when they did the Gravity Rush remastered they they added in the the Figma for Cat and then when you oh, see yeah. like that like that's really cool because that's a legitimate company that, that's making figures that people already want 
like I mean I I I hate them, but if be like over here if you added in um kind of what are those things called? The uh they're everywhere, like Hot Topic and GameStop and all those. Oh, things. fun cold pop. Figures. Yeah, yeah. Like if you had like the, that in, at least at that point, it's like okay, this wasn't just some random one-off thing, you know, made in some factory somewhere. This is actually from a line of things that people actually want and actually know about. Like I think that's kind of a different thing if you add in things like that or the Figma or the Nendroids or whatever, you know. But now, you know, they get cute now, and I've, I think I've said this before. They get cute where, you know, I like to steal books and all that crap. Well, let's use – I'm not trying to pick on Nier, but uh, we'll give a thumbs up to Persona on something here where I'm going to pick on Nier. So Persona, at least on the first print, like it, let's say you don't want to go the whole nine yards and get the Take Your Heart edition for like mm-hmm. 90 bucks. 60 bucks you get in first print, you got that steel book, yeah. right? But Nier and so many other titles as of late, now if you want, uh, excuse me, Horizon Zero Dawn did it. I think Europe, they didn't do it, but the Horizon did it as well. If you just wanted the Steelbook and something a little bit fancier, now they want you to get the middle of the road or the deluxe edition. You no longer get that like on first print or they don't just want that extra 10 bucks. Now they want 30 or 50. And the thing is, is like, and I know you feel the same way. There's some limited editions you have room for or... You have space set aside for, but you can't do this for like 50, 60% of your collection. No. I mean, you're stacking boxes on boxes and all I want is maybe a nice manual or whatever in the case. I don't want like 10 feet, you know, and here's the other trouble. My opinion, now we're getting to a point where, okay, now they're getting cute and they want to get 100 to 150 bucks now on these limiteds, right? Well, I've got two new arguments. If I'm going to spend that much now, I'll make my own limited edition. I'll buy the standard edition game, and sometimes I can either buy, like if you cut the money up, you can sometimes get a deal or buy a higher-end figure based off that series online yourself, right. or you can get the full-blown art book for 25 to 35 bucks on Amazon. Which, so that, now that, that's kind of my thing, too, is like when you're saying about that stuff, is like, like I would love to say I love, I love the idea of putting soundtracks into special editions. Because mm-hmm. that's that's a tangible thing where I legitimately care about that. I think I think art books and see and soundtracks are things where that's actually giving me value and not just throwing junk in to call it a special edition. Right. But the problem with both of those, like I think you're gonna you're kind of saying here, is that they're kind of like, you know, you're getting a slice of the cake, and not the cake. Like like, you know, constantly. I mean, I was you know a big fan of of Silent Hill or. Or, you know, Corpse Party or whatever. And, like, in those things, when they came to soundtracks, they're always, like, these kind of select cut soundtracks. Right. And that's really, like, at, at kind of the more you think about it, like, the first time or two, that's really cool. But then after that, you're like, I kind of just want the entire soundtrack and not just this this selection thing that is only getting me a piece of the way to where I want to be. Check this out. Wouldn't it have been awesome? And I know you would have wanted to jump on it or <clears throat> still looking. Could you imagine if that near Black Box Edition gave you... The first print of that full album with the eight foot CD in there as well with the other stuff for the hundred eighty bucks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I think the problem with that is going into the game. I might, I might not have known I wanted that as much. Sure, but if I knew that would have been that would have been something where I would have totally bought that. You know, I would have paid the extra to get the game and, and the full soundtrack together. Yeah, or even full, or even just like even just like you know a digital code for the soundtrack. Like, you don't need to give me the discs. Just give me like a digital code. Like I think that would have been a big deal. Yeah. Well, with that being said, 
as we move along here on Generic Video Game Podcast, episode 26, uh, only a few weeks removed since episode 25. Uh, some other things we have on tap this evening, but I don't think we'll get into it just yet. You know, we'll talk a little bit about Persona 5, Near Automata, all the latest at egmnow.com. I have a couple things to say about some movies I saw recently. I have a note here for fan mail. I think when we closed out episode 25, there was some fan mail yet to be read. Before I do that, I'm going to do a little plug. I got a surprise. I don't want to know if I want to call it a game or a segment. And this is either going to be kind of cool or it's going to be really stupid. So I got a surprise visit at my work the other day by Neil. And uh, he dropped off unexpectedly the latest edition of Phoenix 4, the history of the video game industry. Hmm. I got this this past Wednesday, the 29th. As a surprise gift from Neil of Bauer Graphics, Double Plus Good Games. I know it sounds like a cheap plug. This book was written by Leonard Herman and clocks in at a whopping 810 pages. It's the fourth edition. And the print date on this is December 2016, so it's only a couple months old. Uh, I used to have an old edition of Phoenix. Um, I think it was like the rise and fall of the video game industry. So I was kind of like, I don't want to be rude and be like, oh, you know, I had a copy of this or whatever. This version is looks way different, and the amount that they added to it is crazy. It's kind of reminiscent in some ways to the layout of like the untold history of Japanese game development, which we've boasted about in the past, Volumes mm-hmm. 1 and 2, and you never know, Volume 3 may be coming sooner than you may think. Mm. Um, so what, the little uh, <clears throat> segment I was going to do, is they have everything in this book broken down by year, dating all the way back to, oh God, technically 1951, but let's say 1973 approximately, all the way up through 2015. So all I want you to do, Molly, is pick a year. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to that year in a book. And then just for some talking points, we're going to see what they have bullet pointed or shots of for that year to bring back some memories. So uh, I'll Okay, so, so give me the year range again. I, and I don't want to spoil the game. Uh, I'm hoping you don't go back to the early 70s. But let's say between 1971 and 2015. Pick a year. 83. Please make it. 83? Gosh darn you. Okay, let's see what we got here. <laughs> Oof, there's a lot this year, actually. Woo. God dang. Hold on. I'm trying to... I can't believe how that I already broke the okay. game. <laughs> yeah, you bro- We've got... Um, there's a Time Magazine... Co- oh, that's 1982. Okay, we're into 1983 here. I'll rattle some stuff off. We've got shots of the 2600 computer upgrades. The Atari Graduate. I'm telling you, there is no rock unturned in this book. The Coleco Super Game Module. I don't even know what this is. The UltraVision VAS with keyboard and adapter. Let's see if we've got anything more recognizable. The Mattel and Television 2. The Coleco Gemini. Obviously, we're still in this uh, Atari oh, the Gemini, Western yeah. era before. This would be right around the crash, if memory serves me correct. We have um, Atari 5200 trackball. Atari VCS cartridge adapter. Milton Bradley MBX. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. We have the, uh, what seems to be Pac-Man from Atari Soft, but I believe that's the 2600 version, which was, uh, widely panned. Horrible. Yes. Uh, 83 just keeps on going here. I saw something, uh, 
the Palmtex Super Micro. Wow, there's we're getting to uh, Cinematronics Dragon's Lair. So there's a big one. We've got um, looking to see if they've got a tidbit here on that. Obviously, Dragon's Lair go. Uh, a major hit in the arcades, mainly because of its uniqueness. Dragon's Lair was a brainchild of Rick Dyer, a video game veteran, who had designed many handheld and tabletop electronics games for Mattel Electronics and Coleco. He had also been involved in designing the Intellivision and ColecoVision consoles. Dyer formed his own company, Advanced Microcomputer Systems, with the intention of designing a game system that utilized interactive movies. He first experimented with computer-controlled film strips, and then moved on to paper tape before settling on laser discs that contained still images and narration. Once he was satisfied with this format, he created a graphic adventure game called The Secrets of the Lost Woods. Uh, Baba goes on to say Dyer tried to find someone to market his system, but no one was interested. After watching the animated movie The Secret of Nim, Dyer came to the conclusion that he needed quality animation in his game. If it was to be successful, Dyer went directly to Don Bluth, the main animator of The Secret of Nim, and explained what he wanted to do. Bluth was interested in the project, but Dyer couldn't afford someone of Bluth's stature. Instead, both men agreed to set up a new company called Starcom, where Dyer's advanced microcomputer systems, which was renamed RDI Video Systems, owned one-third, and Bluth's animation company owned another third. The final third went to Cinematronics, the arcade game maker that signed on to manufacture Dyer's new game. Uh, closing out this uh, snippet, Bluth followed Dragon's Lair with a second Laserdisc game before the first even shipped. Space Ace wasn't nearly as popular as Dragon's Lair had been. Still, this didn't deter other arcade manufacturers such as Atari, Milestar, and Sega from releasing additional Laserdisc games. Uh, as we move on in 1983, we've got everything from the Japan-only Sega SG-1000, the Sega SC-3000. Getting into uh, Nintendo's Famicom territory here due to its uh, Japanese release. The Nintendo Famicom uh, released three games with their console, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. All came on 24K ROM cartridges. Additional Japanese consoles shown here, the Epic Cassette Vision Jr., the Gakken TV Boy. This just goes on and on. We've got more Atari stuff as we close out. Let's see what it says as it closes out the 1983 chapter. Uh, Japan may have been preparing to become the leading manufacturer of video games, but the video game capital of the world was right in the United States. Uh, ba ba goes on to talk about the home of Twin Galaxies in Iowa. It had been given this title on November 30th, 1982 by its mayor, Jerry Parker, the title was made official by Iowa Governor Terry Branstad on March 19th at 83. Oh, yes. That's a name I know, yes. <laughs> really? Yeah. Terry, Terry Branstad. Like, yeah, because I, I, I was right next door. So, uh, Along with Atari and the Amusement Game Manufacturers Association and the ceremony at Twin Galaxies. On July 25th, Walter Day and Twin Galaxies established a professional U.S. national video game team. That's the USN VGT, featuring the top gamers in the country. The original five members of the USN VGT were, oh, here's a name, Billy Mitchell. Yeah. Ooh, what's this next one? And this isn't planned, by the way. This has got to be a coincidence. Do you know what I'm going to say? Yeah, I know. And I, I was expecting this name, yes. 
Is this is this for real? Yeah, he was um Steve Harris. Yeah, his his specialty was Centipede, but he did other games too. And is that the same Steve Harris of yeah. EGM fame? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's my boss, yes. Wow. Uh Jay Kim, Ben Gold, and Tim McVeigh. Their touring duties involved appearing at arcades around the United States and participating. Wait, isn't Tim McVeigh the, the bomber? That- Timothy McVeigh? I wonder if there's any uh, connection to the bomber. I don't know. Uh, their touring duties involved appearing at arcades around the United States and participate in the 1983 Video Game Masters tournament. Between the arcades and the consoles, video games appear to be the hottest form of entertainment. Within a year, that would all change. It's funny you're talking about Dragon Slayer and the kind of like the um, games and lasers and everything. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of the Nemo? Mm, you know i watch so much stuff on youtube and i'm not making excuses there's so much stuff that i see and goes in my ears and out it's possible i could have seen or heard of it but i I can't give you a definition of it yeah it was um it was i think being made through ColecoVision by the um nolan bushnell and then i think tom zito who tom zito was the guy behind digital pictures it was like this night trap and shoot sewer shark. And oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. CD. Yeah, so the original idea for the Nemo was that it was going to be a video game console that worked off of VHS tapes. Okay, I do know. that We might yeah. have briefly discussed this. Yeah, and, and so like um, where all the games were going to yes. be basically FMV games. And that's where some of those games like Night Trap and Sewer Shark actually came from. We're going to, uh, since this is the debut of this uh, here, pick one more year. <sighs> 2001 2001 okay i was i had a feeling you might do that because we were discussing not an argument but we were friendly discussing last episode between 1998 and then you came back with 2001 as possibly one of the greatest or greatest years in gaming let's see what we've got in 2001 here upon first glance oh i know this one's burning uh it's right on the tip of your tongue here the Majesco Game Gear. Uh, ironically, as Sega eased out of the hardware business, one of its older consoles was given a new lease on life. On February 21st, Majesco announced that it acquired the rights from Sega to manufacture the Game Gear. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the point of me bringing that up is that just to show you that this book literally has everything. Uh, the Sony AOL Alliance. With the Dreamcast out of the way, online gaming through consoles came to a halt as the PS2 was not... Uh, yet set up for it, but this was going to change. On April 18th, Sony Computer Entertainment released a new PlayStation 2 model in Japan, like its American counterpart. The new model featured an expansion bay in the rear, rather than the unused PCM-CIA card slot. Then a month later, Sony Computer Entertainment announced what the expansion bay would be used for. SCE used E3 to announce an alliance with AOL that would give PS2 owners the ability to send and receive instant messages Using their consoles. By the way, on a side note here, Molly, I don't remember this. Um, I do remember like the hard drive and whatnot. I don't remember the partnership with AOL and all that. I, I, yeah, I vaguely remember it because it's it's funny because it was that was that kind of time when there were just like so many promises for the PS2 coming out. That's also I was kind of thinking about that while you're while you're reading that. It's like what what console did Sony promise more and deliver less on, like the PS3 or the PS2? Because PS2 I, just had. So many things it was supposedly going to do. I um, I have a jab uh, lined up here as I'm reading a couple sentences ahead. 
just on a side note, this showed it had a 40 gig hard drive, which would plug into the uh, unused expansion bay and would be used to store games and other info. My jab being that this is 2001 and Nintendo Switch, which released a mere month ago, has 32 gigs. <laughs> that being eight gigs less than uh, 16 years ago. Uh, let's move along here, see what else we've got. Which, I mean, I think, isn't the, the joke that that expansion band, the PS2, is actually just where everybody, like, hid their weed? <laughs> I, I haven't heard that, but, uh... I mean, think I about, mean, like, think about, like, now, like, that was, I mean, that was, like, those, those full-size hard drives that computers, like, a lot, like, that desktop still use, you know, and stuff, like, they were just, like, shoving a full-size hard drive into the PS2. If you go back now, it was like a gigantic hole in the back of the system. Well, and the, the only other thing I remember from that era, whenever I hear PS2, like hard drive and, and that time frame, while I didn't part... No, that's a lie. I did try it out. That's a total lie. Uh, I think of Final Fantasy XI. Yep. Because I remember that being pretty much the, uh, the main go-to. I don't know if there was any other games that really used a hard drive. I think there were... I think there's you know, like I'm one sure or two were... other ones. Um, yeah, and I do remember, uh, what was the, it was the white PS2 console, and I actually saw one in town used around town, it's, it was the, uh, actually it was the PSX, I think, which was, had a lot of hardware issues and could do cable TV and all that kind of stuff, I thought that looked pretty cool, but I don't, that wasn't 2001. Um, but they also have shown here, not to get off track here, 2001, they have a shot of the Sega Trans Vibrator for Res, which I actually personally do own. So. I do too. Uh, they have uh, I mean the... like it's if you were around when that came out and you like just heard all the things about it like you could not get one if you had a chance it's just one right. of the weirdest peripherals ever um, they also have in here 2001 um, showing the GameCube the Xbox uh, we've got the Game Boy Advance. Wow, there was a lot going on this year. Let's see. Yeah, Game Boy Advance came out like right before I did a month um, exchange in Japan, and it came out right before I went over there because one of the girls so that, that went and was I... Was that April of that year, possibly? Well, no, we went over in oh. June. Let's see. So it had just come out like pretty recently because the two of us ended up buying GBAs before we came back because... It was not in America yet. Let's see. I'm just taking a look here. I can't remember what game. This is the Game Boy Advance with all the hype dedicated to the two new consoles. It was easy to overlook the fact that Nintendo also released a new handheld unit during the year. The year began with Nintendo claiming that it would produce 24 million Game Boy Advance. Wow, Jesus. Uh, handheld systems during the device's first year on the market. Nintendo of Japan planned to ship 1 million. Uh, of the units at around 85 US dollars or 9,800 yen on the system's Japanese launch date of March 21st. 21 games were expected to be available on that day, including Super Mario Advance, which was a handheld version of Super Mario Bros. 2. However, by January 29th, the company had already received pre-orders for 2.7 million consoles. Many well-known third-party publishers were on board to produce games for the new handheld, including Konami, Namco, Hudson, and Sega. However, it was revealed that many of these companies were hesitant to produce games that could be linked between two or more consoles, but only requiring one cartridge. While the obvious uh, reason was that publishers were afraid that this would impact their sales, there was a technical reason as well. Publishers cited that the limited amount of RAM in the GBA 
could cause some lag time and interfere with the game, yada, yada, yada. Uh, on March 7th, Nintendo Japan held a special GBA preview event in Tokyo for retailers and the media. They announced a new peripheral that would be available for the upcoming handheld, the Pokemon Card E-Reader. It was a card reader that would plug into the cartridge slot of the GBA. Pokemon trading cards would be printed with the data stored as dotted barcodes along the card sides. You remember those? Yeah. yeah. I remember selling those. Uh, Pokemon Ruby, Pokemon Sapphire, Nintendo did not announce either release date, yada, yada, yada. The GBA had an astounding launch with 25 titles available on the first day. Uh, four of them prominently featured the mobile system GB logo on the front of their boxes, indicating that the games were compatible with a mobile GB adapter, which Nintendo of Japan had introduced in December 2000 for the Game Boy Color, yada, yada, yada. The GBA was released in the U.S. on June 11th, where it reached... Wow, you ready for this? I don't... Do you remember how much it came out for in the U.S.? I'm stunned looking at this. I am shocked. Not really. Okay, in a so bag. so my initial guess was 129, but for some reason, I want to say like, like 179 feels like my other guess, but that seems way too high. So I'm gonna say 129. You ready for this? Hmm. 99.95. Oh, was that cheap? Wow. That's how you sell a system. Yeah. That is how you sell a system and make a phenomenon. Under a hundred bucks. You. <laughs> That's just. It's so funny because like I cannot remember what. Game I don't I remember bought. that either. Like no, I mean that's I something. Let's say like I can't remember what game I bought with the system. Oh, I know what mine was. I I, I exactly know what my first one was. Because you the, know. Well, yes, in a second. Um, because the girl <laughs> I was with, she got the kudu kudu kududin. The like the, it's kind of like the stick that's you can turn left and right and get to get to the mazes and stuff. She bought that. I don't know what I bought. Um, so you you got the American launch. I you know here's the deal. I remember my game being Japanese. These you know what I must have gotten the American unit, but my very first game was not American. <sighs> I'm gonna weirdly guess like Fire Pro. Nope. It was my import copy of Final Fight 1. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I still have my whole GBA collection as well. How about you? I thought it was a great little unit. Yeah, I've got them like I've got them somewhere. I've I I didn't I never bought like a bunch of games, but I've got like um what was the game where you're in the drilling thing? It's from uh was it Treasure or Game Arts? Oh god. And you have like the, it has it actually has the rumble pack like built into the cartridge. Oh, I was going to take an idiotic guess. It was too obvious. I don't think I'm right, though. I don't know why I wanted to say, like, Drill Dozer or something mm, like that. I think Drill Dozer is the name, yeah. I think that's what it is. Oh, oh, wow. I think Oof. so. I have, like, that and then, like, Lady Sia still and... Wow. I think I have that one in my uh, collection, too. And there's a story behind that I think Neil has, and I can't remember. I think I have one of the Castlevanias. I have the, I have the Midway collection that had Super Sprint on it. So I used to play Super Sprint all the time on the GBA. Mm. And I have a few other games too, and and I actually I actually did what was it what was the Afterburner, where the four and one classics collection? No, 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 no. I mean the it's the oh the, the light s- the screen light hack. Yeah, yeah. I actually got somebody to install that onto mine. Hmm. I um. What was I going to say? 
you know, I had the original model GBA and I got rid of it, but the only one I've kept that I still really enjoy in my collection is a, is the SP. I love the SP. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the point where, like, the system became real, right? Because, like, the original Game Boy Advance, like, I like the style of it, but just I cannot believe they actually tried doing that without any kind of, like, light in it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I love the... I, I love the SP. Do you have a SP? No, I I have the original model, and then I had a micro for like two days, and decided to take it back, which I kind of now wish I hadn't because they're they're so hard to get a hold of. I think. Oh no, kidding, huh? So I think I just have I think I have my original with the the light hack in it. I don't think I have an SP, do I? I don't think I do. Which is weird. I, I would think I would, but I don't think I do. I've told this story a million times on the show, and people know what I'm going to say, and they're sick of it. But I used to own two SPs, and I sold one at the time for money for Resident Evil 4 on GameCube. But I used to have the Famicom-colored one, which actually came out uh. here. And I, yeah, so the one I currently have, and I do like it, is the silver and black. Um, but I used to have that Famicom one, and that was uh, that was very stupid of me. But now I've made up for it, like, as you have as well with our 3DS collections, and now we have, like, 85 million uh, units. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's so uh, funny is, is yeah. I remember, because I'm pretty sure that came out when we were putting together Game Go magazine, which was the publication that a few of the remaining Game Fan people who write Game Fan when it closed yes. were putting together. And he put it together with Thomas Keller, who was the... He owned one of the big import stop shops at the time. I can't remember which one it was, but it was it was it wasn't NCS. It was the other one. <clears throat> mm. and, the, and the magazine ended up like you know ruining his his company. Um, but I remember ECM, who who was running Game Fan when it closed down, and then he was one of the people heading up Game Go. I, I I was telling him like how excited I was for the Game Boy Advance, and I specifically remember him telling me, "Is like don't get excited for it. It's going to be a bunch of really cheap ports and games dumped on there. These games are going to only have a few months of development time at most. It's not going to be a real proper system. It's going to be just a, a basically kind of like it was going to be like the mobile, the smartphone gaming market of the time." And just how wrong he was about that. Like, how many <laughs> great, fantastic games like the Game Boy Advance ended up getting. And just how that led up into the DS and just how that market exploded so much. Well, it, you know, it goes without saying the Neo Geo Pocket got me into handhelds finally older in life once I was able to get a job and had more money. But, um,. After the Neo Geo Pocket, the Game Boy Advance, once again, not to sound like a broken record, the SP in particular, that just kind of clinched my, um, you know, my want for a handheld in my life. And, you know, the DS has certainly been um, a great go-to for that over the last decade and a half. And even though I don't show it a lot of love, it's not because I don't like it. You know, PSP and, and Vita, I've, you know, I picked those up as well. So if it wasn't for me getting into it in the late 90s, and then really having an appreciation for the later Nintendo products, you know, I probably wouldn't have. I was never a big fan of the Game Boy. I know we've had this discussion. Um, I think in hindsight, I think it's one of those things, if you put me back in time as a kid and you're like, hey, on the road trips and all that, if like if I was able to have one or like, you know, and it didn't cost me anything, look, I'm sure I would have played it and had fun. 
but the Game Boy was never anything that I was like, wow, I want this or I got to save up for this. Like I never saw the, you know, I just saw it as a black and white or pea colored unit and yeah. it didn't appeal to me. And that's, you know, I was always very close to getting a Lynx or even a Game Gear. And then the one I wanted real bad was the Nomad. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it went for me. You know, I wish just like forty nine ninety nine. Make a little Neo Geo Pocket Color unit. Give it a backlight. Just put all the games on there. And just sell it as like this one singular little system that has like every one of those games on it. <laughs> Would you do it? For 50 bucks? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Completely, yeah. I mean, have it be like wireless multiplayer and whatever. I mean, just for, just for Card Fighters Clash alone, like to put that again, like I would totally do that. I just, I'm still, I'm still so mad. I'm still so mad that we never got any kind of collection or digital games or anything for like the DS. Well, don't get me started on this as I wrap up my year 2001. I'm going to tell you what's pissing me off right now is that on the new 3DS, they haven't done a Super NES release since December 29th. And that's really burning my ass Mm -hmm. right now because there's no reason to go a quarter of a year to not put another SNES title up. And they've put some great ones up on there, no, you know, no doubt, over the last year. But, God, it's like... Well, that's, what they, they... that's what they do, though. They, they do these, like... They get, ex- they get you excited for stuff, and they're like, hey, we're going to have this virtual console and everything, and then we're going to have games. And then they just give up on it, like it seems like, after a short amount of time. How that... Like, and a lot... Oh, and, look, I don't want to... St- disrespect the Wii U owner because I don't currently own a Wii U. So I think whatever support they get or whatever they can get is totally cool. But it's also a slap in the face when you still see virtual console titles coming right now and they're not on 3DS or Switch yet. Okay, that's that that's funny that like that yeah, really what we just had some Wii U virtual console titles that's bullshit. Come. It's like are you kidding me? <laughs> think the Switch is now out and That's and bullshit. also like the virtual console on the Wii U is getting games again. And then also the fact that the Wii U got Game Boy Advance games and that the the, the 3DS to- never did. Totally dumb idea. It's like totally you're putting your handheld idea. games onto the console. Yeah, that makes Terrible. sense. Terrible. Terrible idea. Cuz even if it was a case and- of arguing that the 3DS could not run those games, You've got the, you know, the new 3DS now. Like, why are Game Boy Advance games on there? And you have to figure out, because I thought of that excuse as well, but if you think about it, the DS, the 3DS units, excuse me, are backwards compatible. So I would assume if they dump the digital data, it should be like running it off the unit because it's the same, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, I don't even think they have to emulate it, per se. I don't know how that works in terms of those games, but yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I know, just... I know, I know. On the DS, the GBA hardware was built in, but oh, I don't know okay. what, how it works anymore okay. with 3DS. Yeah, but I mean, it's total BS. Like they haven't gotten Super Mario RPG and like any of the Square uh, Soft stuff yet. On like that's it's free money. Yeah. Uh, here's a term. Uh, you remember Bleem Cash? Do you remember that era of? Uh... I have pl- I have my Bleemcast Metal Gear Solid yeah. disc in the Metal Gear Solid <laughs> PS1 case. I was so <sighs> excited for that. I was so excited for that. 
Oh, here that, we go. So I mean, he was, wasn't that we'll crazy? Get... Though? Like, was like, do you think about that? You know, because it was back in the day when, like, when, when, what, like, ColecoVision or Intellivision had, like, the Atari 2600 adapter and everything. Uh-huh. But, like, then we didn't, you know, every now and then, like, it would be weird, like, crazy old things. But all of a sudden, to, to have a major console playing another major console's games, like, that was crazy. Right. Right. Yeah, talking about backwards compatibility before it was a, uh, a common theme. Back at, back in the Atari days. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I mean, like, I mean, they had literally had, like an adapter you could buy. That like you could play twenty six hundred games on a on a competitor's console. Yeah, I think uh, the only reason I think uh, Classic Game Room uh, has gone off because he he's a big fan of all the old Atari stuff, and I remember him doing a episode, I believe, talking about that kind of stuff, which is wild. But uh, let me end this uh, two thousand one on a little bit of a somber note. I'm going to read these three paragraphs wrapping up two thousand one. Magazine births and deaths. Mm. With the release of the Xbox came a new magazine dedicated to that console, debuting on November 6th in the United States. The official Xbox magazine was published by Imagine Media, the same company that produced Next Generation and the unofficial PSM. Uh, In the United Kingdom, the magazine was published by Imagine Media's parent company, Future Publishing, which also published Edge and the official UK PlayStation magazine. As an official magazine, the official Xbox magazine was bundled with a game disc that contained game demos, previews, and game trailers. But while the birth of a new console brought a new magazine, the death of one likewise caused the demise of another. With Sega's decision to discontinue the Dreamcast, the magazines that supported it came to an end as well. The American edition of the official Dreamcast magazine ceased with the March-April edition after only 12 issues. The British version lasted a bit longer. Its final edition, its 21st, had a cover date of September-October 2001. This uh, closes out with the final paragraph. By the end of 2001, the world at large was not the same as it had been when the year began. And the same could be said for video gaming world. Sega, once a major player, was no longer a contender. In its place, for the first time in a decade, was an American console. And the games themselves had grown up instead of navigating an innocent, dot-munching creature within the confines of the four corners of the TV screen. Players could now navigate real cars through cities with much less restrictive borders as they ran over virtual people. Video games were no longer for kids only, although many people outside of the industry Failed to realize that. I have every issue of that Dreamcast magazine, but the last one. Wow. You still have those saved, eh? Somewhere, yeah. And I have all the discs, too. Speaking of magazine stuff, and I, I don't know if I was going to bring this up on the last episode, and I don't have any notes on this, but, uh, you know, you're certainly prominent in the industry, doing stuff down in California, a hotbed. Uh, for gaming, you travel to all the big shows. Have there been any rumblings of the recent um, buyout of Future in the UK taking Imagine Publishing now, and it seems to be official? So you know, I'm always posting retro game, uh, retro gamer, excuse me, out of the UK. Mm-hmm. They've been around about 12 years, and they still exist. But now, the latest issue, which has Road Rash on the cover, which is in its in the mail to me, now has the Future logo on it. 
and no longer imagine because so if you were to go to imagineshop.co.uk where you could see a lot of these magazines if you go to that site it's either not going to load up or you're going to get redirected and they're all now a part of future which really doesn't affect us per, uh because we're in the united states but i do believe some people in the uk kind of feel like in a way it's kind of i don't know if i want to use the word bad that might be too strong but those are like the two main players right but now they're now as you know it's all under one umbrella so um and then future is most known i would say for edge yeah which has been going for over 20 years there's an interesting story behind that now you know what it's in this phoenix book I read a little article on it. It's weird because Edge started out as like a British gaming show and within the year they launched that magazine and as many know Edge was the sister publication to Next Generation mm-hmm. in the US. But uh, did you know it had such a funky start with Roots uh in a TV show? I think I might have heard that at some point, but I I mean I I you know followed Next Gen a lot because that was when I was working at GameFan. And so we paid a lot of attention to like the other kind of magazines that were out there, but um, I didn't follow Edge very much because I, I kind of think I've always felt like, and this wasn't necessarily the case, but I kind of always felt like because I was reading Next Gen, I didn't need to read Edge mm-hmm. because I think there was this attitude at that point that it was basically just the same magazine, but you know, UK version, US version. I missed the early, I missed the first couple years of Next Gen. Like those are the t- when I think Next Generation, I think of like the first two three years. Yeah. Um, I used to, I still have, I have a handful of those issues saved. I still have issue number one saved with Virtua Fighter 2 on the Yeah, program. I think I have like the first two years. Yeah, those are like the best, those it's, are like the best ones. The problem is like magazine collecting is the worst because um, I've got these boxes. Like I've got, you know, of course I've got every game fan, but I've got, I think like the first four or five years of EGM. I've got the first couple of years of EGM 2, first couple of years of Next Gen. Um a number of like other magazines like there was like you know of course game pro game players video games computer electronics um the short-lived insight a couple other ones i think i have like pretty oh nintendo power i have a like first couple years of you know but like magazines are like if you have just even you know a handful they're just just gigantic weight that you have to put in a box and somehow carry that box around and do something with it well i have all these fancy i don't you've probably seen them in some of the photos i've sent you i have all these damn snap tight cases i bought from the container store yeah and that's with me weeding out stuff but it's 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 unbelievable you know but you know a piece of me you know i do it and i i have it thinned down to what i want and it's you know i don't regret it you know i like having some of that stuff and you know you never know when that day comes across and you like to reference stuff or look at stuff. That's how I feel, you know. Um, and you're not going to see that stuff anymore. Uh, by the way, uh, I know I don't know if you're sick of hearing me talk and play uh, narrator here. Uh, I'm going to pick 1994 real quick, only because we're on the magazine uh, topic, and there's a few paragraphs I want to read here because EGM is in there. Okay. So we're in the year 1994, and this is a huge, cha- great one of my favorite chapters because we've got everything from PlayStation. Uh, updates on the Super Famicom, all these unique cartridges, but it says, Magazines reach their peak. This is 1994. Interest in video games reached an all-time high during 1994. In January, GamePro became the first video game magazine to sell 500,000 copies of a single issue. EGM broke a different type of record. 
when its December issue contained, okay, how many pages you think? December issue? Yeah, um, of 1994. I'm gonna guess because <clears throat> I know it's at least 380, <laughs> and it's, I think I'm gonna. I feel like it almost actually got up to the 400s, but I'm gonna guess 380 to be safe. Ooh, you are close. 404. Ooh, I was close. It says uh, they broke a different type of record when its December issue contained 404 pages. So much news concerning video games was coming out that EGM's publisher, Sendai Publications, a side note, old GVGP Molly explains the history behind the Sendai name. Yeah. EGM's publisher, Sendai Publications, decided that one monthly magazine a month wasn't enough to contain all of this information. For a while, the publisher thought about releasing the magazine on a bi-weekly schedule. But that was problematic since each issue would therefore only have a shelf life of two weeks. Mm -hmm. Instead, the company introduced an all-new monthly magazine called EGM2, which was published two weeks after its sister publication, EGM. Now, Sendai had two magazines sharing shelf space every month. Most video game magazines were geared towards teenagers and preteens following the success of the adult-oriented electronic games. New magazines were published that attempted to go after an older audience. The first issue, uh, the first of these, excuse me, was Electronic Entertainment (parentheses E2), which debuted in January by Infotainment World, the same company that published GamePro. E2 immediately gained respectability in the gaming world by providing a monthly column by Nolan Bushnell, who's also cheap plug, double plus good games, special guest alumni. During the year, Chris Anderson, the owner of British-based Future, sold the company to Pearson. He still retained the American GP publications that he had purchased in 1993. Following the sale, Anderson moved himself and the entire North Carolina-based publishing company to California, where he renamed it Imagine Publishing. By the end of the year, Imagine premiered a new magazine called Next Generation, which offered a format that was amazingly similar to the British Edge. Next Generation quickly established a niche with adult gamers. The interest in video games also spread to to primetime television. On November 5th, TBS presented, and I don't remember this, Molly, do you? Cybermania 94, the Ultimate Gamer Awards. Hosted by Leslie Nielsen and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I I vaguely, vaguely remember that. (laughs) The show tried its best to imitate highly rated shows like the Academy and Grammy Awards. Unfortunately, the program clearly missed the mark as D-list celebrities announced the names of games that they obviously had never heard of. If the show had been hosted by game programmers and gaming executives... It might have had fewer ratings, but would have been more believable. There's a couple paragraphs left. It says, uh, let's see. So that's the magazine bit. CES Interactive. Well, before, before you go on, I was going yeah. to say, yep. Um, yep. no, on the part of like about EGM potentially by bi-weekly, you know, I mean, like a lot of the genesis of EGM came from Famic- uh, Famitsu. 
you know, a lot of the ideas yes. and, and things like that. And, yes. you know, like Sushi X existed because in Famitsu they had Taco X, for example. And <laughs> and that's where EGM's, like, multi-person review columns came from because Famicom, Famitsu, I keep someone saying Famicom, uh, Famitsu was doing, like, the, you know, three or four-person things like that. And it seemed kind of characteristics and stuff like that. So, I, I, I mean, it didn't, it didn't surprise me that, you know, I think Steve kind of wished he could go bi-weekly to be more of like the Famitsu kind of thing. You know, because I mean, I think Famitsu is what? Isn't it weekly in Japan? Yeah, fam- yes. I think it's, yeah. I think it's still weekly. Um, yep. You know, and it's it's a pretty hefty magazine. So like, I think, you know, obviously we, we, we go through magazines a different way over here than they do there, but I think there was still that kind of in deep in his heart, he wanted to be more Famitsu-like and do like a bi-weekly which would have been crazy it would have been crazy to have a, bi- a bi-weekly game gaming magazine in america but i'm gonna be a baby and i'm done i'm done reading for the day hopefully uh people didn't get bored to death with that segment i think it's kind of fun i like this book because it gives me we can kind of pick a spot it's accurate information a lot of fun things to kind of jog our memories and if you want i can uh, we can kind of do that in future episodes pick a year or see what kind of sparks our interest and memories but with uh, a piece like that on magazines, and maybe I'm being a baby, you know, you can't you can't mention everybody. But I always get a little upset when magazines of that era are discussed and they don't mention Game Fan. I was gonna say too, and like of course, Game Fan <clears throat> did its own EGM two with Mega Fan, or at least tried to. Right, it didn't quite go as well. And here's the thing: I think, and you've kind of alluded to this in the past at different <coughs> times in, in our discussions, whether it be on other podcasts or whatever. You know, there is that, I don't want to say snooty, but there's that snooty aspect where there are some in the industry that maybe just didn't take Game Fan serious enough. But oh, yeah. The reason I mentioned Game Fan so much is because for people who lived through it and saw that magazine at the time when it came out, it was very exciting. It was very exciting. You know what I mean? Like, whether it be information you couldn't find anywhere else. And the visual quality, the screenshots. Now, obviously, looking back at some of the layouts and stuff now, you can tell certain aspects are primitive or it's very wild. But it's just one of those things. If you didn't live through it and didn't see it and experience it, uh, I mean, that really... uh, And here's the other reason I bring it up. It was successful for a while. Like, it was pretty successful. It wasn't like this thing came out and sold 20 copies a month. Well, when when GameFan went down, it didn't go down because it wasn't successful. It went down because other pieces of the company failed. And brought Game Fan down with it. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, it's, I think it's hard to think about now because we have, like, the internet. And right. so we have so many sources and so many different ways you can get information out. And, and we have, you know, blogs and YouTube and websites and Tumblrs and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, I think back then, like, when you think about it, there, you know, there wasn't really, there was an internet, but it was nothing like we have right now. For, for any of you younger listeners, it was not even close. Um, and the communities were very, very small, and and most people just weren't on the internet, so magazines were still a big thing. And you only had a select number of magazines out there, and publishing a magazine was very, very costly. And especially back then, too, because, I mean, at this point, you know, right now, I can make a magazine completely at home. I can save it to a PDF. I can send it to Kinko's, and they can print it up, or, you know, whoever. And it's not that much, you know, that big of a cost, but back then... You know, we had machines in the basement of GameFan that would do what we call four-color separations, where it'd make, like, this, you had this big clear sheet of, like, acrylic or whatever it was, and it would print out all the 
the black where the black colors should go on the page and all the the cyan color and yellow and magenta and things like that and you have these four color separations you have to look them together you put them in a, a you know put each each of the each pages four separations into this big manila envelope and send it off and things like that like it was a complex process so i think there was very much the the thought that you know you take this stuff very very seriously because how much what, what were you gonna say how much did a machine like that cost at the time? I don't know. I mean, like, it had to have been a lot of money because we, I mean, that and, had to be a ton of money. And we had people like dedicated just to running that and doing it downstairs and everything. Wow. So these were like people that weren't even credited in game Well, they weren't like, were, like, yeah, I mean, they were like, no, I, and of, I get yeah, that. I get like, that. The but these side. were like individuals you'd see each day that were like kind of the machine, the tech people. Of the I mean, I barely knew them because I mean, I, I don't know if, I don't even remember, like, I don't, to a point that I didn't know if like they were only in there at print time or if they were kind of always around. Cause they were because like I mean I was, you know I was two floors above them like Game Fan was like this kind of like three floor building, um, and it, it was just like so I think it was the case of there was so much process and there was only so many magazines out there and there was no other outlets for these kind of things so it was like you take this very very seriously you know because one issue comes out if it tanks it can cost you a lot of money. And this is not a this is not a simple or easy or cheap kind of thing. So I think Game Fan was so different because, you know, if you think about it, it literally was like just a bunch of people with a blog making a blog, you know, about what they wanted to talk about. And so I think it didn't make like economic sense for a magazine to do that kind of stuff. So I think that's partially why we were looked down upon was because we were doing things the wrong way. You know, we, we kind of like people were like, we weren't taking it seriously. And then, you know, we had horrible track record of, of proofing our, our texts and a lot of other things like that. So, <laughs> but it's, it's like now you can't, it's like, it's hard to think about now because I can literally take my iPhone, I can take my iPhone and go out and shoot an HD movie with it, you know, and, yeah, then, I can put on, and then I can put on YouTube, and I can sell it for like five bucks or whatever like that, you know, like, like there's so much of that process that's been taken out. Whereas back then it was still so much work and so much effort had to go into it that you couldn't just be goofing off on it, you know. How how old were you when you started there? I mean, I was I was right out of high school. See, that's this is one of the things. Now, as I obviously as I've gotten older now, I was a big fan of these publications, and uh, I've gotten to talk to a lot of the people behind the scenes. You know, whether it be you and other individuals. And it's kind of awesome to get some of the stories behind the scenes or how certain things work. But there's still one thing, no matter how many people I talk to or how many, you know, how many stories you share with me and we, and we talk about memories of that time. For me as an outsider, so to speak, I still can't wrap my head around as to what that must have been like during that era to be doing that either in or out of, just out of high school. Like that's such a – and once again, kind of going back to what you're saying, you know, there's a bunch of you – know, the younger generation could be like, well, everyone's got a site today, a blog. I can go out there. I got social media. I've got a voice. But like you don't understand. Like – Yeah. I can't – like the fact that – and I'm not bragging about myself. The fact that I even started to import games in 95, like that was like stupid. Like You know what I mean? To even be in that bracket. But like – I can't imagine going to a place of work every day and seeing like just title after title, domestic import, seeing stuff firsthand behind the scenes, beta versions, uh, workers in the game industry coming out for like, that's just, 
it's mind blowing. I mean, but that's you know that's part of the reason. Like when you hear these stories of Game Fan and like just how ridiculous it was, how people weren't getting paychecks and and all that kind of stuff. It's like that's part of the reason why everybody stuck around was because you were you were, you know. Like it, it was not these days. You, you you could not make your own YouTube account <laughs> and be a PewDiePie or an Angry Joe or whoever. You know, you couldn't make a blog and be really popular. Like those things did not exist. We couldn't do podcasts. So there was only a select amount of way to get your voice out there. It was like you do a fanzine or you're in a magazine. You know, um, and so like it was such a gigantic like opportunity to be there doing that. That even though there were so many bad parts of it, you still just felt so lucky to be there. And it was crazy. I mean, like, you think about it like that, like, like, you know, I had had other kind of, you know, regular jobs and stuff. Um, but in, in between, you know, getting out of high school and then going to Game Fan shortly after. But it, like, that was like my first quote unquote career. And to have that be my first career was just mind blowing. Well, um, and I love to pat ourselves on the back. This is a few years ago. There's a gentleman, ironically, out of the UK as well, and he used to write for a retro gamer. And uh, I don't... You know what? He currently works for Nintendo in some capacity, and I dare say it's got to be the European branch. So I'm not going to mention his name because he's with Nintendo. And this is not a lie, so you got to take my word. But he used to write for Retro Gamer. Probably the last was probably in its earlier days. And he's interacted with me very lightly out in the open on the internet. I don't private message this person, nothing like that. But I am connected to him on Facebook and Twitter. A nice person. And I remember a long time ago, like I was posting like the pod, the latest podcast and this and that. And But at the same time, I was showing shots at a retro gamer because they put out those collected editions. And sometimes in their collected editions, some of those articles date back four to six years. And then they go back and modify some of, you know, because they... they so, like, let's say they do a, a section on Neo Geo, and, like, let's say they have a couple articles from this year. Well, those articles may be in there, but if they're doing a whole thing on Neo Geo, they may go back to articles that they did in 2008 or 2009, you know, to make mm-hmm. it thicker and all that. So, I remember putting some shots up of some stuff, and he, and he, like, commented, and he goes, he's like, wow, he's like, he's like, he couldn't believe, like, he saw that article again and how long it had been since he'd written it because he hadn't been there anymore, and, so I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I love, I love what the magazine does, and I appreciate the type of work, you know, I said, because, you know, while very short-lived, I actually have a little bit of experience doing this for a few months, and I've written a couple articles, and, you know, you don't realize how, like, look, if you want me to just bullshit and write a couple pages right now about games, I can do it in 10 minutes. But if you really want to do a proper, well-written article that's fact-checked, sourced, that it's work. Trust yeah. It's, it's work. Okay, it's not the freedom I get on this podcast is I can shoot from the hip. I can do like to an extent, do what I want. Obviously, we have to have a little bit of guide. You know, Molly's not going to sit here if I have my thumb up my backside. um, And, you know, I sit here and I go, I like to play games and that's it. So I was giving him compliments and I'm like, hey, I know this is hard work. And then he came back with a compliment and said, and I'll paraphrase, and I couldn't believe it. And I, I still chalk it up to him being nice. He goes, yeah, he goes, but what you do, like with the voice, like having a voice, like being able to do a podcast and do that type of medium nowadays, he said what you do, like far out does or is far more important than what he did. And I was like, no way. Like, 
you know, and I think that comes down to perspective. I think there's a level of politeness, but like, you know, he meant it. And like, this is someone that's still connected to me. And like I said, I don't really interact with him much, but like, it's interesting. How do I put this? It's interesting to get other people's takes because I still feel like the work that like the type of work he's done or like the early days of like a game fan or next generation, that's hard work. And I know it's hard work because the best article I've ever written and it got published was on the rebirth of game fan. Uh, they published my article on Neo Geo dev team. I interviewed them and did like a four page layout. Hmm. Now I did all the words and everything. The layout oh, wait, that was, to... that was, that was your interview. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> that was me. So like, so here I'll, I'll lift the curtain. So here we go. So I'm going to lift the curtain. So I'll tell you exactly the work I did do and the work I didn't do. So all of the art you saw in there. So when you saw the table of contents, it had that shot of the skull from uh, last hope. And all the shots you saw inside of Last Hope, and I think it might have been some of the first shots ever seen of Fast Striker, that was provided to me by Neo Geo Dev Team. I will say all of the words, everything you saw there written, love it or hate it, that was truly me. So, like, they didn't... Now, they had me rewrite it, like, a couple times. But everything that was printed, they didn't touch. So that, was in the first, that was in the first issue, right? No, this was like... Was it uh, in the later issue? It was a few. Do you know? Do you remember the cover? I don't have it in front of me. Do you remember the cover? There were two covers that month. One cover had, um, God, I was going to say Bloodstained. Oh my God. It had Blood Rain, the chick from Blood Rain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rob Duenius. And then the alternate cover was like a mesh of characters, including like Kid Icarus, yeah, Jill, yeah, like yeah. Jill Valentine. Okay. I think it might have even been issue six. I'm going off memory. Hmm. That issue. So I did all the writing, I submitted all the art and photos. The layout, though, I have to give credit to Rob Duenas. So I submitted all the stuff, and then he did the actual layout. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Dave Halverson did a little something, but the photos that were submitted and all the writing was truly mine. So I did that. Uh, but point of that is, is that I've gotten that published. I did, and then there were more pieces I did that got published on the old Game Fan Rebirth site. I did an article on X-Men Children of the Atom. I did... Um, a couple previews. The other, the article I really did want printed that was supposed to get printed but never did is I did an article on Game Boy Advance's 10th, was it, it was either the 10th or 15th anniversary. So the point is, is like, I know the work that goes into that. So that's why I have that level of respect. But then it's interesting to see the opposite side of the coin where it's like maybe an individual who's done that his or her whole life and they're just used to that sequence. And then they maybe, you know, maybe they don't like their voice being heard. Maybe they don't like doing a podcast or doing the setup for the audio recording, all that. So to me, because of how long I've been doing it, and it's not like I have to do a ton of prep work, it's easy. Yeah. I, you could bang out a podcast in a night. So to hear that from someone who's actually someone in the industry and does stuff now with Nintendo, I couldn't believe it. Well, you know, I think what it is, is I think, I think you can kind of miss like how complex something is. You know, I mean, like, um, and this is going to sound super egotistical for me, so I'm, I'm sorry. I tried not to be that. But, <laughs> you know, I think that, like, I'll read some people's writing and be like, oh, my God, this is just terrible. You know, whereas I kind of feel like when I just sit down and write that it's, it's a process. And it's, I'm not saying I, wanna, I don't want to say it's easy, but, like, I, I know what to do. I know the steps. I know kind of how to, how to flow myself. The hardest part's always the beginning, and once you get past the beginning, it, it goes pretty well, and I, I can just kind of sit there and bang things out from there, you know. 
But then you look at a lot of people who try to write and it's very, very difficult for them and you don't understand that it that for other people it's not doesn't come that easy. I think with podcasting and, and the reason I'm thinking this is because I've thought lately about the, the kind of YouTube stuff and you watch so many of these YouTube videos where it's it's called the you know the YouTube cut. <clears throat> Where you can tell the videos cut, 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 cut. So there's like these, there's like no pauses, there's no breaks. Oh right, right. You know, and right. I, I saw, I saw a video a couple weeks back, and it was this girl. I think it was a girl explaining why the YouTube cut exists, and she's like, because if there was no YouTube cut, we'd be sitting here going, um, so yeah, um, I did see that movie. And, you know, she keeps like going that, like that, like, you know, for a few minutes. And it's like, that's not the case. I mean, I think it's the case for a lot of YouTubers. But if you look at anybody out there who does podcasts, and I mean, I don't think anybody, but if you look at any of the podcasts that are successful out there, mm-hmm. you have people who can carry a conversation. Right. And I think about it, too, because I've, I've done panels and I've done kind of speeches and not, not I don't want to say speeches like speeches, but like public speaking and things like that's that. That's a pre- yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, of course. Is you you learn you learn how even if you don't have like cue cards in front of you or you don't have a teleprompter or anything, you learn how to kind of organize those thoughts in your head and then you learn how to naturally speak and connect things together and as long as you know this is point A, this is point B, this is point C, like you don't have to have that entire route like charted and everything already. You know, you can just naturally be talking and get from those different points. And I think that podcasters, like, I think to have a good podcast or actually a listenable podcast is you have to be very good at doing that mm-hmm. unless you are going to sit there and spend a lot of time editing the shows. So I think partially maybe what he was saying is the fact that it's very hard for a lot of people to do public speaking. And I think public speaking and podcasting are very, very similar. Yeah, and I tell you, not to brag about myself, and I'm going to say a couple things for people listening who are thinking about podcasts or things you don't think of. First off, I can bullshit with anybody. So now, does that mean all of my work on my podcasting is stellar and A-plus? Absolutely, hell no. But the thing is, so there's a couple things. Before I did any podcasting or anything like that, like if I were to sit home and watch a video or let's say even in the infancy of podcasts, it's very easy to sit at home and be like, oh my God, like how did, like, I'm making this up, okay? So this is a fake example. Oh, Donkey Kong Country didn't come out in like 1992. It was, you know, whatever, 1995 or whatever it was, 94. But it's like, it's easy to nitpick or like, oh, listen to that person jumble that sentence or mix those two words up. Like, what an idiot. Like, how do you, like, that's so easy. Like, how can you mix right. up Ninja Theory and Team Ninja? What are you, an idiot? You don't know games. You don't know jack shit. But I'm also going to tell you this, because I used to be guilty of that kind of stuff. When you're recording a podcast, you have, I've got the microphone. I've got the cable going into the back of the computer. I'm watching the audio recording box. I have to make sure the levels are decent. I've actually cursed more in this episode than I have in the past, but I haven't dropped any F-bombs. The point is, is I will brag about how I can talk to anybody, and I can talk for hours. What you get of me on the podcast is me. I'm toned down a little bit because of my foul language. If I talk normally, it would be similar to Stone Cold Steve Austin's Unleashed episodes. So you have to tone that down, and even though I love to talk like that, 
I have to admit, it's not good for certain reasons, whether it be for your body of work or presenting it to certain individuals. You don't want to sound like, like uh, David Jaffe or a foul-mouthed trucker all the time. But the thing is, is no matter how good an episode comes out or like if I get a clean read or I think, wow, even I'm happy with how that sounds. I never sound as good as two things. I never sound as good as when you sit with me like in person on the couch. And I never sound as good as using a ground phone line. Because I can even tell the difference. It sounds so crazy. Like when I'm using a ground phone, we have like one ground phone line at work. And when I'm sitting there comfortably in my chair and I do a greeting or I'm talking to someone, I'm at ease. But when you're doing like a recording or you're on video, it's true. You're not like you get way better at it and you forget it. Start like, for example, right now I have the headphones on my head too. Right. And I'm sitting in a room here for two hours and it's starting to get hot and warm and sweaty. So I've got all the equipment around me. You got to make sure everything's functioning. No internet drops, et cetera, et cetera. It's never as clean and comfortable as if we got like right in the living room right now, turned on gaming, sat on the couch and started bullshitting. It's never as clean as that. If yeah. we sat on the couch right now, but I, I could talk till two in the morning clean. Like I could go two in the morning, not be out of ideas and not worrying about all the other stuff going on in the background. But but then I think there is definitely a level of conversation in it. In sure. That, you know, I know people who do a lot of rehearsing and stuff like that. Like, I mean, I almost never rehearse for anything I do. Um, like if I'm doing like panels and things like that, I, I, I feel like I do worse if I rehearse. Because I think that if you get good at being able to just do things off off the cuff, you know, um, that I think you get much better in the long run at, at doing this kind of stuff. Just because oh, I, I, I think, I think uh, yeah, just pre-planning and everything like that, like it has to be more of a conversation. It has to be, you know, that you're coming with this up with this stuff off the top of your head and you're not going to sound perfect necessarily. But I think it ends up being better than when you hear or see these things that are just so super produced. Like the YouTube things like really, really drive me crazy because you, you, your brain, even if you don't like just naturally think about it, your brain is noticing it, your ears noticing it, you're noticing that like their head just all of a sudden a second later is like in a completely different place, you know, and that all their sentences have no pauses and no breaths. They're right, just on and on and on and on and on. And you know, we as humans like aren't trained to either talk or listen that way. You know, in, in, in natural... It's not natural. Yeah, in natural human yeah. conversation, there are those pauses where you take a second and then that person who's listening to you gets a chance to kind of actually process what you've just said. Right. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are all things. And the more you do something like any, many things in life, you know, you get better at it. And the last tip I'll say on this, and while it was very fun, this isn't a knock on anyone because I was very guilty of this and... When I did Double Plus Good Games podcast for north of four years. With the exception of our interviews, which we were always very, for the most part, professional. You know, we had a bad habit. Myself and co-hosts alike, all together, we're all guilty of this. You know, we'd get on and we'd spend the first half hour, 45 minutes. We were telling the filthiest jokes, the most inappropriate stuff. And we'd be laughing about stuff and doing voices and... Here's the big mistake that I'm going to tell everyone not to do. Don't do it because Neil, the mastermind behind it, would be doing all the editing and the editing process would take forever. 
And every time I'd go into an episode, I'd try to be a good boy. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to go in and clean. I got a little bit of a layout. And then starting in with comedy and this and that. And boom. And then I fall, get sucked in. I'm telling disgusting X-rated stories and using the most disgusting language. Well, guess what? Four hours later when we're done recording and we got to edit out two hours of that. You know, I'm getting a call five days later every each respective day on a Friday and editing is taking like 10, 20 hours. So the one good, so here's the thing. You learn from it. So with the Generic Video Game Podcast, we've been doing it now for just shy of three years. We've clocked in just about 30 episodes. I think this might even be, even though we call it 26, we did like three DLCs and then right. episode zero. So I think this is episode 30. With the exception of the opening, Molly puts in select pieces of music at times or little special endings and rare occasion. There is virtually zero editing. So my goal is always to come in with a clear uh, clear head, do a clean shot, and leave it at that because I have been through the days of knowing what the editing is like. Now look, some of the generic video, or the, the Double Plus Good Game stuff, there was some funny stuff. There was a lot of music integrated, background pieces. There were some great segments. But at the same time, the price at which, with which that came, editing-wise, was hell. So my advice is to, to make sure you're hitting a certain demographic, come in prepared. Don't be, don't be too much like Andrew Dice Clay. And you'll be patting yourself on the back and thanking yourself uh, once the episode is submitted and done. Well, I mean, I learned that you know, the hard way on warning, because, you know, you, you kind of come to learn that for every one minute of audio you have, it takes like three, four, five minutes to edit it. And, and you don't think well, about not that to get first. too behind the scenes. Did you have to do a lot of editing on warning? Well, for so similar I, reasons? in the beginning I started doing, I was doing editing and I mean, I was literally going through and any, any major dead space I was cutting out, any kind of like ums I was getting rid of. That's you know, tough. I was trying to do all that stuff. And, but then, of course, you know, the warning episodes started getting to be like three hours, four hours, five hours. And when it's five hours and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's going to take me 20 hours of editing to get through it. I'm like, no, I, I, I can't. I cannot survive mentally or emotionally doing that. So I would just be like, put into GarageBand. And you can kind of get, you know, once it actually fills out the, the waveforms and everything, you get a kind of quick look. And you can, you can, if you do a quick browse, you can be like, okay, there's definitely a spot here where there's a lot of like just dead air and you just listen to it real quick, you know. And then every now and then, what I usually do for podcasts is I'll, I'll jump through the podcast, maybe like at every like 20 minutes or something like that. And I'll listen to see like how the levels are and make sure everything's mm. lined up and stuff like that. So I think that that's definitely good to do. But yeah, if you get into editing, like serious editing, like you're going to really get into it and cut out pieces or cut out the, you know, the ums or the hesitations and things like that. Like I said, you are looking at three, four, five minutes of work for every minute of audio that you have. And it just will, will kill you if your podcast is too long. If you have a 15, 15 minute podcast, that's one thing. But I I do think I agree with you that if you're going to do podcasts, then you should really try to get into a rhythm where you can do it without needing that. Right. And it sounds easy. It sounds simple, but you know, it may be like one oh one rudimentary, but until you do it, 
you know, hey, maybe you're better than me. Maybe, you know, maybe you've got a, your head on a bit more straight. But uh, I don't regret anything. And um, it's not like there were any friendships that were hurt or whatever. But it just got to a point where, like, when I when I approached Molly and Molly was kind enough to agree to do a show, you know, I told myself, you know, I'll use the S word sometimes or BS, but, like, things never really get out of hand. And I told myself I can't, you know, and I know I could do it. I could be disciplined enough to go through on a clean run, so to speak. But yeah, you know, you never know when you get together with your friends or you're doing stuff and things get crazy and it's fun and it's not bad to have a good time or to have a fun time. But, you know, man, some of the things that got edited out. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's really easy to like, especially we talk about, like, you know, jobs you used to work or, or, or behind the scenes kind of stuff. It's really mm-hmm. easy to then think about like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I want to go back and kind of cut that out. So right. just it's really good to get in that mindset of let's say you're talking you know around strangers and like at that point what is your filter for what should i say what should i not say right you know and just have that from the beginning and like you're saying don't think about oh we can go back and cut it out just be like don't even do it in the first place that's right that's exactly right well as we uh move along here gvgp26 don't forget to check out egmnow.com don't forget to check out Molly Penn on Twitter, M O L L I P E N. You can hit me up on Twitter anytime at 24 bit A J E, the number two, the number four. Check out our site, radio.morningproject.com. Check out its Twitter feed at Morn Radio, M O R N R A D I O. And uh, you can also still find, I believe it's EGM Now on Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a little bit of handful of plugs as we move along here. Um, I know th- there were two main things. Let's get to two main things. Let's see. Let's say there's going to be two games we're going to touch base on. This is what we'll uh, move along on the show. We'll end it with. We got two main games, Persona 5 and Near Automata. And then I might just briefly discuss a couple movies I saw in theaters recently. It's not going to take very long. And then we will check potential fan mail if you think that's. Uh, I have one. So okay, can you do that? So the let's see. I know you were kind of chomping at the bit, and I don't know how much I can add. I'm about six or seven hours into this game, which once again, with the size of these games these days, does not mean anything. Near automata, which is funny. It's funny because I pronounce it automata. Uh, I'm saying automata, and it's funny you say so that. I don't know which one of us is right. Johnny Millennium on Happy Console Gamer, who just gave his impressions of Nier. It's so odd you say that. He kept saying that he's like, oh, this whole time in development, he's like, I call it automata. Uh, what did you say? How did you pronounce it? Uh, automata. Yeah, he said it's something similar to that, but he's like, oh, I heard it's automata. But he's like, from here on out, because of how I've called it, he still calls it. What I you think you're, it. you're probably right, because, I mean, automaton is kind of like what a. a, a a machine that has its own life or something like that i think mm. so you're probably right but i think the problem is i think of it the japanese way and the pronunciation oh, okay. in japanese would be automata okay. Or, okay or that's kind of close like you know so there's something else recently that was like that where um it was just so funny to hear like different like what people when they see it instantly think like their pronunciation is but well i'll tell you the game for many years but i've now changed its pronunciation older in life is uh i now call it gradius but i used to call it gradius, gradius. um yeah gradius, gradius. i think i think i was gradius yeah 
Mm. There's Mario Mario. <laughs> There's a couple other like really big ones I can't think of offhand now. But now the th- now the the thing with near the premise is. I'm going off memory. The human race, essentially, we, we've gone from planet Earth. They've gone to the moon because there is a virus or disease that was planted by aliens on Earth. And you are an android, one of, uh, I don't know how many, sent down on Earth to try and find the source or reasoning for as to what's causing the elimination of mankind. Is that a well, fair no, assessment? Well, it, no, it wasn't really a virus, um, I mean, at least from my understanding of playing through it. It was more like just the aliens... Came down, they started a war with us. They had machines. These machines were, you know, killing humans. Humans had to had to escape. The humans escaped to the moon, and then the humans build androids to be machine killers. So basically, you have kind of this war by proxy. You know, you have the humans who are fighting their war with with androids, and aliens who are fighting their war with machines. Mm. I have to let that sink in. And it's, I mean, it's, so, you know, of course, this is kind of the pseudo-sequel to Nier, which I I got a little ways through. I didn't get as far as I should have gotten. Um, it was a, kind of a cult classic game that did not do well commercially, and also, I think, review-wise. I think a lot of people didn't understand it or or got stuck in certain parts, like fishing parts, for example, and things like that. So the first game was beloved by this this kind of core group of fans, but it didn't have that success. And this time around, they go to Platinum Games, and they work together with Platinum. And my thought was, and I think probably a lot of people thought this as well, is this is kind of like, not necessarily a Bayonetta 3, but kind of like that. You know, this linear progressing game where you have stage, 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 stage. You have this girl who has swords and you can do all these kind of fancy attacks. And she's playing robots and these big bosses and everything. You progress through a story and then you're done. <clears throat> but I think probably if you were coming at it from near, having been a fan of near, I think you knew that it wasn't going to quite be that. So, you know, having not played enough of near to really appreciate what the creator Yoko Taro did in that game, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be kind of traditional plat- platinum games. And it, it's totally not. Like, once you get past the initial, the first stage, the first stage does feel like that because it's very linear. There's one path to take. But you get these a couple times where, like, there'll be an elevator there and it says you can't use it yet. And you're like, well, if I'm going to be done with this stage soon, what does that elevator mean? Like, why is it there? Like, why would I use it? And when would I use it? So you get past the first part. And I guess a lot of people have had a lot of problems with the first part getting through it because you can't save during that thing. And so if you die, you have to start all over again from the beginning. So once you get past that part, the game opens up in this kind of like open world adventure. Now I say open world. It's a more compacted world from, say, like a Red Dead Redemption or Grand Theft Auto or things like that. It's kind of like a mini, like a snow globe sized open world. But it does a lot in that little world, and the game takes a lot of pads that you're not necessarily expecting it to. And I, I think that the thing that like really got me, I mean, there's so many good things to say about it. Um, 
But I think the thing that got me is is you play so many Japanese games that are kind of like on the B tier, you know, like like B level, and they'll have good ideas and they'll they'll have some great characters or they'll have great stories or or settings and things like that. But you always kind of feel like, man, if only this gameplay just worked. And I think a good example of this for me is Suda51. Because I think back to like Lollipop Chainsaw, where I loved the idea of Lollipop Chainsaw, I loved the story, I loved the characters, but the gameplay just didn't feel good. Like it didn't. Yeah, you've always, you've always said that about Suda's games. Yeah, and you know, especially Lollipop, it just did, it just didn't have that. And I, I said back in that point, like I wish Platinum had made it because I thought then the combat would be fantastic. So I think there's a, a lot of times where these Japanese games come out and where you're like, man, I just wish it had more polish in the gameplay department because then it's going to be something really special. And I feel like near Automata or Automata is that Japanese game where it got that gameplay polish. And, you know, it still has problems here and there. So it does some weird things, especially like if you don't have patience or if you're not okay with games having different kinds of storytelling, then this might game might really bother you. But it's just a quintessential that Japanese B tier game where you wished the combat and control to be great, and they actually ended up great. And it was a very, very nice surprise. Well, you You've touched based on a handful of things earlier on in the conversation, and I completely agree, especially based off the demo. You start to play it, you can make a lot of uh, comparisons to Bayonetta, but I will be the first to tell you that upon putting the time that I have into it, it really isn't. I mean, you, you can draw some parallels in terms of the responsive gameplay. There is a female lead. There, you know, some of the battles are in, I don't want to say closed off environments, but you know how third-person over-the-top action titles play out. Like, you know, like your Devil May Cries or whatever. You have, like, the demons, you know, doorways or whatever are blocked until the set of enemies you encounter are taken care of. So, you know, there's some of that. But once you get going into the game a couple hours, doesn't take incredibly long. Yeah, it's... um, It... And I don't want to echo... I've only read a couple of reviews. I stayed away from a lot of stuff until after playing it a chunk. The game does meld a handful of genres into this one title, but I do feel it makes it work. Um, Even though we just went over the backstory, and I'm actually glad we did go over the backstory, because while the game does tell the story i think as you go on and on in the game you know you can sometimes forget or be like wait a minute like what am i doing um but it, it, and i don't know why the game um so obviously it's you know it's a platinum title like this game reminds me it's not so much it reminds me of particular games but am I crazy to make a statement saying that not only does it remind me in some ways of a square title, and not only does it remind me of a platinum title, I get a real Konami feel from it too. Yeah, I can kind of see that. And I think this also goes back to a private conversation you and I had previously. While the game does use modern tech and looks great, 
this is totally a game that I could have seen coming out in terms of like design or concept on PS2 between the years of like 2003 and 2005. I was gonna say I think I think there's kind of two eras I think of. I think it's either um, PS2 era, in, or I think it's NES era. Just in the case, I think both of those eras are really good examples of, or I would even say maybe like DS era when when companies are trying really different things. You know, like I mean, because you, you think about like. Like, I don't want to say it's like Bionic Commando, but I feel like it's kind of like that kind of, you play this and you're like, this is really different than what I'm used to, you know? Right. And it, it might not always gel in your head, but it's like, wow, this feels like something different. And I think definitely PS2 era. I totally, if if the PS2 could have ran it, I totally could see this being a PS2 game. I could almost kind of see it being a Dreamcast game, though. Like I don't know that Sega. I feel more so. This game, but I, I feel like it could have been a Dreamcast game. Sure. Well, I think a couple other things with this title that can't be denied is it's certainly Japanese. I mean, this the game is just. I mean, there's no doubt. Like, there's nothing really Western in this title. And furthermore, secondly, it's a miracle that a title like this was even attempted or made with a release in 2017. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice that we can still kind of get these kind of games, you know, because it seems like a game like on paper that would make no sense. I'm trying to think of, like, what I want to compare it to, because I, I feel like it's one of those just where, where you Some where, of where the, like, uh, I think where you play it and you feel like you don't completely understand what's going on. You know what I want to know? And I don't know if you know this, I should. What engine does this game use? Because like That's there are moments, and obviously it does look it. It certainly is PS4 worthy. I don't know why Molly, but cer- depending on certain looks or certain shots in the game, I feel like it's almost using like a variation of like that Final Fantasy 13 engine. Uh, and I'm not saying it is, but like I don't know. And then I don't know if um, it also has a little bit of that feel of like those. Uh, Oh God! What's the term? The it's like more of those Asian or like MMO sci-fi RP like MMO RPGs. Am I making sense? Like I get some of those. Like oh yeah, like like Black Desert. Don't you feel like that? Yeah, I think in terms of like more like design, like design yeah. of the world, design of the characters, and things like that. Yeah, because kind of like the class is very like stylish. Like everybody looks really good, and their clothing is stylish. And right, stuff like that. I almost want to say, like, I mean, and this is this isn't going to make a comparison. It's going to make sense, but I feel like if you play a game like Deadly Premonition, it's kind of like you go into it thinking, oh, I kind of, I know what an open world city game would be, like a GTA or, or you know, whatever, like Mafia or I don't know whatever else. But then you play like Deadly Premonition, and you're like, this is really weird, and it's it's weird in kind of a weird way. Um, and it's kind of like what I feel like this game is, is it's like you go in kind of thinking that you know what it's going to be, but it's not that. And it's hard to put your finger on exactly what game it feels like, you know, because I think there's a lot of games out there where you can say, okay, this feels just like this or this or that, you know, 
And I think Nier Automata is just kind of like, it's hard to pin down like what game this feels like. But I know like on the, on the like, just I have it in my brain. Some like, of the, there's a the certain menu, game I'm thinking of that. It really the menus, like to. what the menus remind me of, uh, <laughs> the first thing I saw and I even got this from the demo was Metal Gear Solid Three or like Metal like yeah I can see just that, that cl- the clean you know what I'm trying you know what I'm talking about yeah. like the load menus and uh, in no particular order and some much more influence than others like you know this game reminds me of everything from you know we've said like Bayonetta I get a touch of modernized JRPGs like your Final Fantasy. Like I'm talking the modern stuff in terms mm-hmm. of some of the visuals. It has some Konami influence. Like some of the designs and stuff remind me of everything from a touch of Zone of the Enders to even Xenosaga. It reminds me of um, I see influences from the likes of like you know Ghost in the Shell. It's a whole multitude, a mishmash of, uh, I mean, uh, do you agree with any of those? Yeah, and I also was thinking, like, kind of, like, I think of, again, like, I'm thinking more of, like, what games have the same feeling and not necessarily gameplay. Like, I think Gravity Rush felt kind of similar to this, where it just had that, like, this feels different. And and it's kind of a smaller world, but it's, it's, it's a smaller world, but yet it's an open world where... There's more layers to that world than you were initially expecting. Yeah, this isn't as gargantuan as a true open world title, but I will tell you from what I've played, it's still like, this is still going to eat up a lot of time. Well, it's kind of also- like Dark Souls 2, where in the case of like, you might see an area and be like, huh, that's interesting. Oh, and then later on, yes. find out you can actually go down there or go up there. I don't, yes, even though I'm not the Dark Souls expert and you are, I totally forgot about that because, I don't know if it's a spoiler, but because of... Um, Yeah, it's another one of those games where you can die. You know, if you're not on the ball, you will die, and there are penalties for dying, so to speak. Yeah, and and then also there's a case of like where, um, you know, you'll you'll find the dead bodies of other players, and then you can you can help them and kind of leave messages in a way and stuff like that. So. I wonder if I wonder in time if we're going to look back at this year of gaming, you know, between like what 2012 or whatever in 2017 or 2018 and kind of be like, yeah, that was the time when there was a lot of Dark Souls style influence, like when Japan was trying to get back in its groove, that was one of the things they latched on to while finding their footing again with everything from Dark Souls to Bloodborne to Nier to neo um you know you know what i'm trying to say yeah and i mean i, I absolutely it's like i it's funny because what kind of hit home for me the day is that we've done i think we've done like three news stories lately about triple a games that come out that have all had like these dark souls easter eggs in them because i know overwatch did battlefield one did and then something else did recently I don't remember if it was like For Honor or maybe it was like Ghost Recon Wildlands that had it. And it's just so funny to have like these games that you think are so far apart from like Dark Souls where you have people, you know, making these games who are obviously fans of Dark Souls. And so I think you have like these certain points where 
you know, games come along and they just make such an impact that that influence is felt, you know, for a long time afterwards, even in games that you necessarily wouldn't think would be influenced. Yeah, and it's, you know, it seems like we're trying, we may be having challenges describing this properly on the podcast, but I think it's... But I also think be, I also think it's kind of game where, like, be, I, I think the less you know, the better you are off when you go in. Now, because you've completed the title, and I'm not that far into it, did you feel like as the game went on, there were more surprises, more and more, and you were kind of like, wow, okay. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Mm, mm. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy ride the entire way through. And you know what's funny is, like, it's also, it's one of those games, I think movies work this way, too, where, like, the music is so good and hits you on such a subconscious level that you can, like, listen to the music later on and it makes you, like, reminisce fondly for that game or that movie or whatever. So I kind of think that, like, the music even just alone can make you feel like the game was better than it was. Right. Because you hear it and you're just like, I mean, like in a weird way, like I think like, you know, the, the Daytona USA song, right? Like you, you <laughs> listen to that and it just right. instantly makes this really fond feeling and memories inside. Absolutely. Of you There's a connection. Game. Yeah, exactly. You know, or, or stupid, you know, offspring. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You, you hear that and you think crazy taxi. And you're like, oh my god, Crazy Taxi was such a great game. I remember playing that, you know. And so near definitely, I mean, but it's a good, it's a not, it's a great game. But I think the music, best soundtrack of the year, easily best soundtrack, probably the last handful of years, easily I think for a game. Um, it's so funny to me that I review Persona Five right after Near Automata. Because Persona 4 and 3 were these games notorious for the soundtracks, you know, with the, the, with soundtracks that just kind of felt different and felt unique and really felt like they were kind of breaking out of the traditional mold. And then it was super hard for me to appreciate the Persona 5 soundtrack because I had just come out of Nier. Yeah, and I've heard, uh, I've heard great things about the Persona 5 soundtrack, and I thought of you because it was really unique timing in what you just said, so... I don't know if unfortunate is too strong, but it's maybe a little unfortunate in that respect that you got to review them so close because, uh, yeah, I know that the near soundtrack is uh, near and dear to your heart. I think, I think near is going to be the kind of game that we look back on, um, really fondly as the years go by. Like I think of it as kind of like a jet set radio or an Ico or Panzer Dragon Saga and kind of games like that where, <clears throat> You know, it came and maybe it wouldn't wasn't gonna be as appreciated as much as it should have been when it first came out. But then the further you get away from like, man, that was a really special game. But at the same time, it seems to have done way better than expected, which is nice. Um, the reviews have been crazy good for it. You know, sales seem to be doing pretty well. So thankfully, this seems like it was an actual legitimate hit, whereas it could have easily just come and gone and been forgotten. You know, in a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, without adding more to this, certainly, obviously, your reviews at egmnow.com, uh, you gave it a very generous score. You'd still tell fans who are on the fence or not too sure to definitely give it a shot and check it out. And I mean, it's the thing, too, like, I give it 8.5, which 
unfortunately these days it's is low to some people you know uh because the the median is is now seven not not five like it should be but i think this is one of those kind of games where i i the score that i gave it from my job might not necessarily be as high as the score i would personally give it you know because i was being more critical of it you know because that's what i was supposed to do for my for my work um but i i think i mean this is like i think if you have appreciation and i wrote i want to read the last line of my my review because i think like i kind of just summed it up in a really nice way um but it's just it's there's so many there's so many good games this year like it's it's hard to tell people just to buy it no matter what because there's already so many games you're probably buying no matter what that like this is literally just throwing another game on the pile right um what did i say at the end of my review i said um the tragically beautiful tale of an android named 2B in the world she fights for may not satisfy those raised on a diet of AAA offerings, but it'll be one hell of a ride for anybody who can appreciate the artistry of imperfection. And that's kind of like, like, I think this is a perfect, perfect example of that flawed um, diamond that comes from Japanese gaming. You know, where all the pieces when put together aren't perfect and they aren't all put together in the exact ways that they should be. But the fact that it is imperfect also kind of makes the game better in the end, you know, because I think this had been more polished and more kind of traditional. It wouldn't have been as good of a game. So it's like, you have to have some appreciation for certain things. Like you have to be able to forgive a little bit of jank here and there. You have to be able to appreciate really, really unique ways of storytelling that at times might not make sense. But if you can do all those things, then this game just feels so special. Like I said, it's it's one of those it it doesn't feel like anything else, and it's not gonna have anything else that feels like it for a while. Yeah, I mean it's I keep saying it over and over, but it's it's really crazy that we got a title like this right now in 2017, and and um. But this is the year of every good Japanese game coming out. I know so it's, it's it has so to come out now, like... or else it'll never come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it just doesn't stop. I mean, like like you just like you think about what we've gotten, I and mean, even if it, you, I think you have to kind of include. Obviously, the end of last year, right, is we got the Final Fantasy game that was never going to come out. We got the the Shadow of the Colossus eco sequel that was never going to come out. Um, we've gotten the Persona 5, I mean, the, the, the Persona game that was promised to us in 2014. So that was never going to come out. We got Neo, which was a game that disappeared for years and years. Yeah. You know. Uh, we got Gravity Rush 2, the sequel that we should never have gotten because the first one didn't do that well. You know, um, we got Yakuza, a series that could have been and stayed dead yeah, in America. Yeah, we, we had such trouble. They almost didn't even want to bring Yakuza 5. Yeah. They did it digitally on PS3, and then now, now all of a sudden, like, they can't get them out here fast enough. Yeah, got so... Zero, yeah. So it's like, it's, like, it's like this year plus, you know, tail end of 2016... 
where just all these Japanese games that have been taking so long to kind of come to the surface to kind of really show themselves are all showing themselves at the exact same time, and it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, while you've gone through it and the review's up at EGM once again, uh, Persona 5 hits in uh, three days. Yeah, gigantic. Um, I finished it 105 hours and 29 minutes. And and that was that was with the game ending sooner than I thought it was going to end. So yeah, and I read the entire review. Uh, actually, let's we'll lead it. So w- once again, we'll wrap up on near. So near definitely worth a look. Definitely for longtime uh, Japanese gaming aficionados, don't want to miss that one. Uh, moving along to Persona Five, long time and coming. I read the entire review, which went up uh, a few days ago. I don't know if this is a spoiler. Should I tell fans what you gave it number-wise or just let them? So it did not get the coveted 10 as Persona 3 did. And what was it? Persona 4 Golden on Vita, I think you gave it 10, if I'm not mistaken. That's a good good question. I don't know if I did. I I want to say it was a double whammy. But Persona 5, uh, certainly worthy. And I really think it's important, and I'm guilty of this before I give the number. I'm guilt. Do I ever go to Metacritic and do I ever look for the score? Sure. And I should be, you know, burned at the stake for that at times. But you really have to read this review to understand the reasoning behind the score and to understand that this game in many ways is truly superior to the previous centuries of the past decade plus. So it's you have to it's the overarching element it, you have to read this review to understand and it got a, a nine which is still a phenomenal score so definitely worthy in the persona series definitely run out and buy it still at the upper echelon or very top of the jrpg jrpg genre and i think it begs the question once again from here on out. So we've had consistent success right now with Persona 3, Persona 4, and Persona 5, at least critically. And sales-wise, I'm assuming they've done well, and I do expect P5 to do very well. Mm-hmm. When people talk about JRPGs, and the first one that usually comes to mind is Final Fantasy, should Final Fantasy no longer be the first one that comes to mind right now? So I, I, I did give Persona 4 a 10. Um, I wonder if that's my only 10 I've ever given EGM. That's a good question. I thought you might have given... Oh, I know you wrote the one. I just thought of it. What was that? I think I, I think I did. Gravity Rush. I, I wonder if I gave Gravity Rush a 10. The first one. The first one. Gravity. This, this compelling listening to my typing on my new computer. Um, <laughs> that's remastered. I don't want remastered. I want the original. Because it's actually funny because um, behind the scenes... Uh, there was a conversation about I was like, no, I give it nine point five. Um Oh, you didn't give it a ten? No. I could have swore there's another ten. I'm not I wanna say there's another ten in there because I remember when I saw it, I was like, wow, because I was like, you hadn't given because I remember Persona three standing out as a ten or the only one you gave. And then I remember Persona four Golden got I could have sworn there was one more. Maybe I'm nuts. Cause I, I legitimately thought about giving a ten to uh, Project Diva Future Tone. 
and I had to kind of. I don't know why I found this so. Yeah, funny. I was like, um, so, so it's kind of funny because I was thinking about this whole Final Fantasy thing, and like, I kind of, I kind of do think that, especially because if you look at Final Fantasy fifteen, like, it feels more Western, doesn't it? You know, it, I mean, it's it's not it's it's still very Japanese in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it also feels like it's taken a lot of inspiration from Western games. Sure. And that it kind of wants to be a Western game in some ways. So I do feel like if you think about what the epitome of of the Japanese RPG is at this point, like I feel like Persona 5 might be it. Um, and I, I think it's probably the best example I can give you right now of a Japanese RPG. Um. And it was really like it came down to me that, and this was a really really hard review for me to do, was that it's it's a fantastic game, and it it is like I said that like visually there is no other JRPG I can think of that visually is as good as this game is like. Atlas is on such another level when it comes to the the visuals of this game that it's almost kind of scary. Like, why are they able to do this and then no other company is doing this? You know, because I mean, I I think people think of Atlas as being like the kind of the menu, the menu. You know, like Atlas is the only <laughs> developer I can think of where they could release a teaser trailer of nothing but the menus and UI from their games, right? And fans would eat it up. Like, they would love that trailer. Because <laughs> I still remember the day when the first UI for Persona 5 trailer came out. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. people went nuts for that. So I think people think of Atlas as like that. But when you play Persona 5, like, it's not just that. It's just like every detail in this game feels so stylish and so thought out. Like, everything feels like somebody actually paid attention to it. And the this they you know they took the kind of graphical style of Catherine, which was made to be kind of like a test bed for what they do in P five, um, and that just brings so much more to the game and makes it change so much that I think like you know we spoke of Yakuza is like I think if you compare like walking around in Yakuza you know, in, in Shibuya or Tokyo or whatever to walk around the same areas in Persona 5, they might not be as impressive. But I think when you look on like a JRPG scale, like I just feel like there's not many games at this point that are doing this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so, I, so, yeah I, I'm, I'm refraining. I'm holding back some comments because I do I have some experience with Yakuza and I think they're great, but... Um... I don't want to say it's apples and oranges, but yeah, I, let me say this. The art direction and the stylized aspect of this is just, it's killer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think like, I think like you, you tend to like kind of expect this kind of stuff from different kinds of games, like more mm-hmm. open worldy games where they know they have to have that world exist there. Um, but it's just, but my problem was that Persona 3 came out in, in 2006. So just around ten years ago, because mm-hmm. original game was nineteen ninety six. So like, you know, Persona original came out in ninety six. Ten years later, we get Persona three. Ten years later, we get Persona five. And the problem I had was Persona five really feels like 
polishing Persona 3 and Persona 4. You know, like, okay, here's what those games really should have been. And so, so we're giving you that version of that. And that's great, but I, th- I think kind of coming off of Catherine and just how different that felt and how unique and how special and how kind of daring it was. Like, I really wanted to see Persona be a little bit more than it is. And, you know, I said in my review that it's, it's an evolutionary step, not a revolutionary step. Right. And I just kind of wish it had pushed itself a little bit harder and, and tried to... Because, you know, I mean, Persona is, I think, now one of the biggest JRPGs that kind of um, sets the tone and breaks new ground in the genre. So I feel like it was time again for that game to try to do something similar to that instead of just doing the same thing. Um, I'm thinking of where to start with this with you. Um, Okay, one of the things you mentioned was you still got over 100 hours into it and you enjoyed it. And there were certain things you didn't get to finish or didn't get to do, so to speak. On a replay through, do do you think you'd be able to do the things you didn't get to do, like give certain gifts or level up certain things? Well, yeah, because I mean, part of the problem, like if you play Persona, the new era, is that like you have these five like stats. You have um, knowledge, charm, kindness, proficiency, and guts. And... A number of the things you want to do in the game, you can't do until those stats are at a certain point. So you have to spend a lot of your free hours, like, you study in the library to up your knowledge, you know. Or um, you go and, and work at the flower shop and so your your charm gets up, you know. Or uh, this or that to get your other things up. And so you have to spend kind of your first playthrough building those stats up in order to even get to the point of doing some of your social links or different events or things like that. So in a second playthrough, you're going to already have those things maxed out. And it also, the game kind of gives you certain items from certain things that would help you in a second playthrough Mm. uh, to get back to higher levels with certain characters and stuff like that. Mm. So it it really does feel like a game that you need to play twice um, because I don't want to spoil anything, but the game does not last as long as you think it's going to last. But that's crazy because we still got over north of a hundred hours. But yes, you're just but saying, I'm I'm talking more you're like say- game world wise. It doesn't last as long as you think it's going to last. Because coming out of Persona Three and Persona Four, there's a very very specific range of time that players think they're going to have, and they don't have that this time around. Hmm. Do you feel when it was all said and done, did you feel the story was satisfactory? Did you feel it was really good? It's Lived. it's it's really good. But the problem that it has, I did see. Some, I, I don't want to say. It, I don't want to spoil it or bring. But I did see one of your big gripes was with a couple characters in there. Yeah, but I think the bigger problem that it has, um, is that, and this is kind of it's weird to say this is a problem because for certain people it's not a problem, but the game is very heavily. Um, based around looking at current Japanese society and politics. 
So it's kind of like if you think about if we had, let's say we had made an RPG about dealing in kind of like the Trump era. Like you export that to another country and because they're not living in that situation, like they might not understand and appreciate it as much. No, no I'm going to totally guess because this isn't in the review. Uh, I haven't read this. So when you make a statement like that, are we talking about things that pop up such as whether it be the stereotypical things of the pressures of school, the next step in life after high school? Could it be things as deep as like the population, the divide between the elderly and the young? Are we getting into things like that? Yeah. Oh, really? And also, like I said, like like specifically like Japanese po- politics too and what's been happening in Japan in recent years in terms of elected officials what, and things would, like that. Would it have like Abe? What is it? Uh... Kind of, yeah, kind of like an Abe kind of comment. Like obviously not Abe directly, but... Um, Does it get into things like newer generation versus old and hierarchy and like middle management like do are we getting in that deep um some things yeah because it's, it's it's definitely like an old versus young and how like old people have failed at society and they're just kind of out for themselves at this point and they're not really looking out for the greater good and yet people are kind of it's it's what's really funny what's really funny is this is very much based around japanese society and all that kind of things but there are some similarities to what's going on in America right now in terms of the political side of things, in terms of um, – I really, I really don't want to spoil it, but there is a certain character that you can kind of see very Donald Trumpy, And it was funny because obviously he's not in any way, shape, or form meant to be Donald Trump, but you see echoes of what's going on in our country in this game. Also, because in part Japan's go has Japan has gone through or is going through some similar things. Hmm. So I think on on one level it can be very hard for Westerners to preach the story, but I mean that's not saying like you're going to be completely lost or or anything. It's just like right. there's a deeper subtext that you might not always understand. Hmm. But it was certainly good and coherent in that respect. Like if you're worldly or have you know. You're astute to those kind of things. It wasn't anything like, oh, God, this was such an idiotic turn or this was... Uh, no, I mean, there re- was only, like, so, like I mean, like, my biggest complaint story-wise was there was one point where a really interesting thing happens, and I think the game doesn't follow through enough on that interesting event where it could have done more with it. And I think it was just resolved too quickly. Well, I've got a complaint coming up, and I haven't even played the game yet, so get ready. <laughs> Get ready for this. Okay. I have it all printed out. And that's not saying I'm not going to get suckered in on this game because I do like the series enough. I know I'm going to wind up uh, partaking in some of this. But I have printed out uh, earlier this month, the Persona 5 website offered a prelim DLC schedule today. Mm. Have you seen this? Yes. Today Atlas has updated that uh, to go over all of the free and paid add-ons people can expect to see between April and July 2017. Here's the full list grouped together by date so you can know when every incentive will be available for the JRPG. Free items are available in April, June, and July. April 4th, we've got everything from uh, Persona 5 Healing Item Set that's free, Japanese Audio Track that's free, and that's big for a lot of fans. Which which I didn't have... Um... It has not been come out yet, so I did not have that in time for doing the review. Hmm. Uh, new difficulty, sev- uh, difficulty level setting, 
uh, challenge is free. Persona 5 skill card set free. But April 11th, uh, we get into the Persona 3 costume and background music special set, $6.99. Persona 4 cost- costume and background music set, $6.99. Persona 5 regular clothes and school uniforms, that's free. Uh, Izanagi and Izanagi Picro set, three, it's about 3 bucks. Orpheus and Orpheus Picro set, 3 bucks. So long story short, each respective month, there are some freebies. I'd say maybe 40% free. 60% paid somewhere in there. I have to admit, there's some really awesome, cool sound and stuff over the months. Everything from SMT Persona costumes to 20th anniversary stuff. Um, Persona 4 Arena Ultimax costumes and background music set coming in uh, late April. Dancing all night costumes. Swimsuit set for P5. That one's actually free. Shin Megami Tensei 4 costumes going on coming in May. I think Molly's going to be excited for this one. The Catherine costume and background music set. Devil Summoner, Raido, uh, Kazunoha costume set. Ba-da-da-da-da. But yeah, so I mean, they're pulling from other entries in the series and classic Atlas stuff. Some of that's going to be very tempting. But long... St- I mean, here's the deal. What mm-hmm. I wish at this point... Here's the thing. When you do the math, it's a whole hell of a lot of money... Yeah, it's still a distant second, a way distant second to DOA five. <laughs> yes. But you don't want, but you, <laughs> but that's not, that's not a compliment that you want. Um, they would have been much better saying, and this would have still been been high priced. Hey, either nineteen ninety nine or twenty nine ninety nine. Here's the full costume season pass. Yeah, like it should have season pass. As much as I hate saying that a game should have season pass, like it should have had something. Um. The thing I thought you were going to maybe bitch about, and I think this is this is a valid complaint, is so I'm looking to see like what's the latest date on here for for DLC. I see a May second. Uh, it goes up through uh, I have it here July 11th. Okay, so July 11th, right? Yep. So part of me's like maybe you should just wait till July 12th to play this game. Oh, because so you, you get to use... experience each the sets for certain aspects in the game. Because it's it's because kind of, I mean something in a similar weird way is um, Square Enix just announced that they're you know they release a patch either just released it or is really are releasing it that fixes quote unquote fixes yes, chapter, chapter 13, thirteen of Final Fantasy fifteen. Yep. And it's like okay, that's great, except for everybody who's already played the game, right? You know, and I kind of. Like, I kind of feel like stuff like this DLC for Persona 5, it's just like, why is it taking until July right. for us to get it? I like, mean, the deal, I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, and I know you know, probably know this, I understand why you're asking. I mean, it just comes down to probably keeping the game in people's minds, marketing, yeah. you know what I mean? Keeping that disc in the drive. I guess, but I mean, just like, like is this going to tempt anybody at that point to then finally pick up the game, you know? It's just I hate stuff like this. Like, right? If you're if you're gonna give me, okay, here's like a you know a post game DLC that adds some new story to it that I can play with my save game that I've already got. Like that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But these things that I I'm gonna use in the game, it's like this is. It took me a hundred hours to get through it. Do I just not even play those hundred hours in the first place and wait till all this DLC is out and then pick the one I want to use and then play it, 
or do I play the 100 hours first and then wait to play my second playthrough if I'm going to do one until this DLC's out? Like, who is this DLC for? You know, that's because I think the hardest of hardcore fans are getting the game right when it comes out. Right. And they're going to play it right when it comes out. But they realistically, depending on how this year goes, might not get back to the game. I, I've been saying this for years now. It was a pet peeve of mine then, and it's still a pet peeve of mine now. I cannot stand when games are coming out and they want you to go out and pre-order it and buy it. And before you even get the game home, there is a list of DLCs and stuff either coming or laid out for more money. It just bothers me. Yeah, that was the thing earlier with Destiny 2. It's like, um, you know, if you get the super big box, it's like, and here's a voucher for expansion 1 and 2, you know. It's like at well, least at least let me pretend for a month. Yeah, that, that I have the you. full game. You hit you hit the nail on the head. Like, and I'm not trying to pick on P5 because this is more. We're just talking costumes and novelty stuff, which which by the way should be in there anyway. But yeah, when you get to these games where it's like, oh, get this map, or there's going to be these levels or these add-on additions, and in some cases, I think there's exceptions to every rule where maybe sometimes it makes sense, or if it's like way down the line. But when your game isn't coming out for six to nine months, and like you've already got map packs laid out, or you know exactly what's coming and how it's going to be done, it's like, why isn't that in a game that you're spending sixty plus dollars on? And then I was complaining earlier about steel book cases and art books, but I'll tell you an even bigger complaint. Like when you're spending these big dollars on these games, like some like some of these limited editions, like you were saying, are like $150, $200. We're approaching, we are at console prices. Let me tell you something. When you spend anywhere north of like 150 bucks at least, or I would even say 100 bucks, but 150 bucks and up, you should get every damn thing that that game puts out for its lifespan. You know what I mean? Like every season pass, when you dish out the price of pretty much like a console for this company's one title you should get everything that that thing puts out without having to buy yet a season pass separately or anything like that i think i think the part where like i just lost all hope was when nintendo started doing season passes because <laughs> i'm like you know they were the last company ever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you would think it's going to do microtransactions and season passes and all this kind of stuff and as soon as they did, it's like, yeah, it's just that's that's this is what our world is. And but yeah, I mean, because even you know, you buy like Dark Souls, you know, like when I bought Dark Souls, the original Dark Souls, you know, um, Miyazaki, the the creator, he says, um, you know, this is a complete game; it doesn't need DLC. This, you're, when you buy this game, you're getting a complete game in the box. Now later on, I did have a, a one DLC pack, and that's because fans basically wanted it and it was a thing that they produced after the game came out and like well we had some other content i think it might have been like content that wasn't used or whatever it was <clears throat> and that's one thing but like then dark souls 3 comes out and i already just know as soon as i buy it it's like yeah there's gonna there's gonna be three dlc expansions cause that's how everything works these days it's always like three expansions that mm-hmm. are gonna come out you know and they're gonna be a couple months apart maybe time they, they come and it's just like i i i miss that day of just buying a game in the box and knowing that I've gotten the full game and persona five to be fair is very much that like you, you, you know, you said you don't need all these costumes, mm-hmm. but there was a time like I remember. <clears throat> yeah. Like in your, you, it'd be in the strategy guys or whatever. Like, Hey, this is secret section. You go through the game or you unlock this here and 
there's all these outfits in the game. I remember playing Dead or Alive on Dreamcast and having yes. all those costumes to unlock. Yes. And and if you look at Dead or Alive 5's DLC offerings, oh. it is criminal. This it's, you should see the comment section. It's criminal. Um, oh, there was something I wanted to ask about it. Fudge. I mean, and, and I want to be very clear on something that um, and I said this in my review is that whenever there's a game or a series that you love and that you really enjoy and you care about, that the more you like it, the more complaints you're going to have about it. And, and I, I think having complaints about something means that you care. Because if you don't care, you don't have complaints. You know, I, if I play a crappy game and I'm like, like Tales games, personally, right? If I play a Tales game right now, I'm not going to have any complaints about it because I just don't care. <laughs> like, I'd rather just move on and think about something else. <laughs> so when I complain about all these things in Persona 5, it's because I legitimately care. And at the end of the day, I think this is... I can't say of the all personas. I will say new era persona. I think if you're looking at new era persona, persona five is the best one of them because it is the most robust gameplay wise. It has the most polish. It has new features that I would hate to not now have. If I go back to previous games, the visual style is so different and so good that looking at persona three and four now, they look so like just old and rudimentary and which is crazy yeah and and just amateur like they look so amateur now wow um and the cast is is really good i think p4's cast i still like better but i think the cast is really good so it's it's easily the best in the new era of persona you know so don't let don't let my words make you think it's not that it's just my wish is more that Everything that's here is fantastic for the most part. I just wish it had been something different. But what it is is amazing. And before I lose my train of thought again, so you were saying your last bastion of hope essentially was Nintendo with um, season passes and all that. I'm going to kind of one-up you, and I know you don't like this series, but I'm going to tell you when I knew all hope was lost. It actually wasn't that long ago, and I'm being very serious. The moment I saw Tekken 7 going the route of having additional characters like separate from what's on disc, mm. that was it. And the reason I say that is because years ago, Harada uh, discussed how he felt in his, he said in his games or in a Tekken, you will never see extra characters separate than from what's on the disc. Now, that's not to say they wouldn't release like, you know, like a Tekken tag tournament or separate iteration on a different disc. Right. Because, and I completely agree with this theory. He said the reason we won't do it is because each character is like a chess piece. So when you don't have all of the characters, if everyone's not on the same page, excuse me, you don't have all of the pieces for the game, so to speak. But he did go on to say, hey, he goes, you know, they may do things like you can download soundtracks or extra outfits, like all that kind of stuff he said was fair game because... He said that stuff doesn't affect the gameplay of the game itself. And I, I'm, I'm assuming this wasn't his call. They must have, like, put a gun to his head or something. But did you see recently that, like, Tekken 7 is going to have, like, a season pass and all that stuff now and, like, guest characters and uh, all that? I didn't, I didn't know that, so no. I know that's not him because I know in interviews he's been adamant about that. And 
So they must have, you know, Namco or whoever saw the, you know, the money opportunity and there's going to be extra characters coming separately from what I can I mean, tell. that's like with like, I think Dark Souls, like I'm willing to bet that From Software is not sitting there thinking like, oh, we should do all these extra DLC things, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's part of a deal with Bandai. It's like, hey, just make the game you want to make and then give us some extra stuff we can sell later. I I always find a way to bring this game up in a podcast somehow. But do you know one of the last games that I I played that I... uh, And they were even proud of this. That all of the unlockables were in the game. Nothing to pay for. Hmm. Bayonetta. Hmm. If you think about it, like all the different outfits, all like the right. the gym out, yeah, everything was nothing was they did that on purpose. Yeah, that's true. But um, before we get off the uh, SM or the Persona topic, uh, I wanted to ask you, and I don't know if this is going to be brief or not. And I know you've explained it in the past, and I know you've explained it to me a couple times, and I'm going to ask it again for listeners, and then for my idiotic self. Can you briefly explain the differences? Between Shin Megami Tensei and Persona. So, yeah, because Persona was originally... <sighs> Megumi... And this gets Megumi confusing Roku? because was if you look Megumi at... Brother? Persona 3 and Persona 4 in the box, I believe, says Shin Megami Tensei, Persona 3, and 4, respectively, right? It does, it does now. So, you know, so originally, Megami Tensei was, uh, I think, a novel... And there were two different games that were based around it. Atlas did one, I think, was it Telnet who did the other one? Did like this really weird, like kind of top down, like uh, action adventure game. And mm. so I believe how it started was that that Megami Tensei was a, a a novel series, and then Atlas picked up the rights and then kind of started making games from there. And I I think. I don't. It's it's hard for me to to explain the exact difference of how Persona was different, but I think it was in terms of the the setting and situations and the um kind of background behind the the story and stuff like that. Is is I want to say that the kind of Shimmingai Tensei was a specific brand, like it was a specific series of games. Like okay. the, there is a Shin Megami Tensei, Shin Megami Tensei two, three, and four, and so on, and then Persona was kind of in the same universe, but it was a kind separate, of a spinoff, kind of yeah, kind of a spinoff, and I think it was meant to be. I don't know if I want to say How a, little, I th- a little younger skewing. Yeah, what but... I was going to say is when I think of it mentally, I always think of SMT as like a bit darker. Yeah. Well, I mean, but the, to be fair, the first Persona was pretty dark, and and mm. part two. Kind of oh, that's true. Too, in the a place, way. That, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, <clears throat> but I think it was kind of the themes and stuff like that. And like I said, Megami Tensei and Shin Megami Tensei were, were legitimate like series. So in Japan, Persona wasn't called Shin Megami Tensei, and when it first came to America, they actually called it Revelations Persona, and oh, Revelations yeah, was going to be the the series name. And it, what happened was. That kind of in the West, and this is this is how I feel it happened, is in the West people came to know the Shin Megami Tensei series, and that term or just Mega Ten, you know, Megami Tensei. Um, I would say specifically Megami Tensei, Mega Ten 
was kind of the term that Westerners used for everything. And in the West, people just kind of automatically lumped persona into that because to us, Megami Tensei meant all of these very specific RPGs that Atlas is making that use the same kind of like demon set, you know, and the same kind of ideas of finding demons and talking to demons and fusing them together and using them as like your allies in battle and things like that. And, you know, all these games had Jack Frost and Pixie and Pavarotti and like all these kind of other, you know, demons, Mara. So I think in the West, like we just all, we just got to the, it was easier for us to say everything is Megami Tensei than break it down into separate series. So in the West, all of these games together became to be known as Shin Megami Tensei. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of has a little bit of a name recognition as well. Maybe yeah. they didn't want to lose that as well. Yeah, like I said, it's it's. I think what matters more in the West is like, yes, this is when I was under RPG with demons in it and stuff like that. Whereas the exact branding of it isn't as important. Let me ask you this, and, and thank you for explaining that and once I'm not again. Even sure. Truly, like, I'm, I'm gonna look because I don't even know which band. And like at this point, <laughs> does Persona Five have any kind of like a a kind of title on it? I have a wacky question because yeah. this game can technically be done on PS3. Obviously, I know the resolution may be a little bit different, maybe a little bit of frame rate issues, but it's PS3, PS4. Do you think you know what I'm going to ask? I, I may know, but go ahead. Do you think this will finally make its way to the Switch for Nintendo? Alex, that's not what I was thinking you might ask. That's I not what you I, thought I was... I thought you were going to people asking does me a Vita version. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't... I, don't I mean, okay, all jokes aside, I always laugh at... Okay, very serious answer. That is a very logical um, thing you said because P4 got the juiced up version on Vita, right? And I'm not, I don't mean yeah. this disrespectfully, but the Vita ship is gone, right? Well, and so for what, what, of, what makes me laugh, yes, what makes me laugh is, is and God bless her, I'm not saying anything bad about her, but there's a reviewer out there who I guess spent part of her review of Persona 5 bitching about this not being on Vita and how I think she might have actually lowered her score a little bit because it wasn't on the Vita version. Wow. Well, and and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm the freaking one here with, with, you know, Vita Princess in my Twitter handle, and I'm not bitching about it not being on Vita. Like, I can't believe that if anybody is bitching about Persona 5 not being on Vita, like, that I'm not the one doing it. Well, so that, like, just, well, that, like, uh, made, made me so surprised. Well, let me say this. If they ever did announce a Vita version, that would be shocking that let me put it to you this way i haven't bought a vita game in like 18 months just to say i have it i would buy it on vita just to because that would probably go up in price i mean i i can't i can't imagine it would ever come but i don't think so but all okay but in all seriousness don't you feel the next logical step for that type of market and with the and with the momentum it has right now wouldn't you be trying to get P5 out of version as quickly as possible before it gets lost in this game, you know, as time goes on in other games? Wouldn't you be trying to get that on Switch? Like, I'm going to be realistic. 
fourth quarter this year, first quarter 2018, or maybe a year from now on Switch? No, I don't think I would. You wouldn't? Because I, I think if you look at Atlas's plans for the series, that they have very specific places where these different games go. Mm. Um, and I mean, there is only one Persona that was not on PlayStation hardware, and that's Persona Q. And the reason for that was because it was it was it really was Persona meets Etrian Odyssey, and Etrian mm. Odyssey was born and bred on on the 3DS. You know, so because it was so heavily influenced by by Etrian and had all that kind of map making and and you know stuff like that, that that made sense to be on the 3DS. But I think otherwise. I just don't know that you're going to see Persona over there. Like I, I'm going to let me go crazy. Don't you think they could even do? I, I keep saying this about the reason I keep bringing the switch up. It's not because I'm that in love with it. I'm really not. I mean, I think it's 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 a cool system, and I'm enjoying it. I'm still playing Zelda, by the way. I haven't talked about it this episode. The reason I keep bringing the switch up is because it's really kind of feeling. It's it's got the momentum right now, and it's powerful enough to do some a lot of these J these Japanese games we're speaking of. And it does have that handheld aspect, even though I pretty much don't. I use it in console mode 99% of the time. But here's the thing. Here's why I say this. There are a lot of people I know, and they're not hardcore gamers. I'm not making this up. And they bring their Switch with them everywhere. Now, I think part of that, in all fairness, I think it's because it's a new item. I think it's because it's hot. I think the true test is going to be by the end of the year or next year. I'm not going to sway from that. But with that being said, there are a lot of people enjoying it and bringing it around. And I don't know if it's just because it's a new toy and they want to show it off. But if I was looking at that and you figure 3DS isn't powerful enough and Vita, you know, isn't the the best opportunity for it. I don't know why you wouldn't put that on the Switch. I, I think it's, it's I think it's just I think it's just. I don't want to say, I don't think loyalty is the right word, but I think it's just they have certain I know franchises. What you mean. I, I know, I, you know, places. and I think this may be a bad analogy, but I think you could have made those arguments in the late 90s, early 2000s with Sony versus Microsoft. But as time went on, as you know, all that's in the garbage. But okay, but I mean, but look at like, look at all the games that Atlas could have also ported to like the PSP or the Vita. That like 3ds mm. or DS got, and yeah, they didn't. Yeah, but I, I know this is a terrible. I, I know you're not going to like this, but but they didn't have. Okay, I, I, my answer there was that they didn't have the same install base. That was my answer. But I will meet you halfway on but, this. But Switch hasn't. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to. What's that? Well, I keep saying it because. Okay, I have a weird. Okay, that's a fair statement, but I feel like. You figure it wouldn't be from the ground up. The game is done. And even though your install base is a fraction of what it's going to be in a couple of years, it is growing. And the people are hungry enough and excited that I think there are people that would buy it that normally wouldn't. Now, I was gonna say, you know what? I mean, I don't think it would reach Zelda levels of... of um, uh, what is it like system to game parody you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i think it could get close to zelda where where you've got like three-fourths of switch owners owning it you know in japan i think i think you could have gotten close to that if they had wanted to do it um and i guess i'm not saying that they're not for sure not going to do it but i i just 
I really do feel like Japanese companies have this kind of loyalty feeling to them. Well, I'll say this. You know how you said you didn't understand why um, certain titles didn't go to 3DS or Vita, vice versa? Do you know what I honestly expected to get announced for 3DS at some point throughout its, its lifespan and it did not? Hmm. I honestly thought we'd see Persona 3 and Persona 4 on there. Yeah, I just, to me, though... Because the, you figure the hardware can do... Because you know what I'm trying to say? Because the hardware can do it. I, it couldn't have, though. I don't think it could have. You don't think so? Not 4. It could have It could have done the Toned Down 3, but even then you'd have to, like... The problem with that is you think about, like, just... You're losing so much more resolution than putting well, it onto the 3DS. You even, know why I say from, that, though? You know why I say that? Cause, because it was originally a PS2 title. We were still using standard def. Yeah, but I mean, but you can't port that over because you, if you port anything, you want to port the PSP version. Uh, well, I was thinking, hmm. but you know what I mean. I think that's still a fair. You know, I thought I, I still thought for the money, yeah, because of the install base. I thought they'd do a pack or separate like a surprise because I think that's definitely possible. But long, nonetheless, doesn't matter. They didn't do it. I mean, you said you look at like 3ds and like look how many like they got the Soul Hackers remake. They got Shimming on Tensei 4. Mm-hmm. Um, they got uh, uh, Strange Journey. They had SMT4 Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Yep. They got the Devil Survivor 2 games. Yep. I, they got a ton. And the remakes. Yeah. Persona Q. So, I mean, yep. so the Nintendo hardware got a, like, a lot of these games. Because, I, you know, cause, I mean, if you look back, like the, the early... Megami Tensei stuff was coming up on the, the Super Famicom, I believe. Yes. And originally, in the, back in the old days, but then Persona started on the PS1, um, which, by the way, it was, it was the only game to have the Megami Ibunroku title on it. Everything else like that just, was just Persona. Um, so I just think they've wanted to kind of just keep it, like, you know... In the PlayStation family, I said, I just I feel like Japanese companies, like you look in the number of Japanese games that come out, where in Japan there's only the the PlayStation version, and then when it comes to the West, then the Western side also makes or puts together like the Xbox version. So I just feel like mm. there's I feel like there's that kind of like culture of, you know, these are specific games for specific platforms, going on. right. But I, I could, you know, I on the same time, though, I, I think you are kind of right that if they had had a Persona 5 version for Switch ready for Switch launch, like, that could have been a very big deal. Maybe. Yeah. It would have been weird because you had two RPGs, but they were drastically different styles, you know, with uh, Zelda and yeah. P5. Well, let's do this as we start to come into the uh, final quarter. Of the Junior Arc Video Game Podcast 26. Super duper quick before we get into the... We'll make the last aspect of this show, the fan mail. Have you seen any movies lately? Uh, I don't, this isn't really tied to uh, Asian culture or entertainment or anything like that. But I did see... I saw Logan a couple weeks ago and I saw Saban's Power Rangers. I, 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 wanna, you... I really want to see both of those. I think the last movie I saw... God, what was the last movie I saw? That's a good question. Like We, we went and saw something a few months ago. Oh my God! What did we see? Well, I know you definitely saw Rogue One, and the only reason I that's throw that's that what out, it was. I think it's Rogue One was the last one we saw. Well, the reason I throw that out there, I don't know if you know this, but the, it releases this Tuesday. Yep. 
So I've got a copy coming in the mail from Best Buy, their Steelbook. You I don't know steelbooks. You know I can't stand Steelbooks. You don't like Steelbooks? No, I think they're dumb. Like for anything, for gaming for anything, or anything? Anything. Hmm. I can't stand that, non, that, that, that non-conforming packaging. I just can't stand it. <laughs> yeah. I, I like them. I do. I mean, you heard me going on and on about it. Okay, so I mean, Logan, I know is going to be good. Like, there's, there's no question about that. Um, but what did you think of Power Rangers? Uh, <laughs> okay, so I, I was not a huge Power Rangers fan growing up. Let's start with that. That's not to say I didn't watch. So my memories of Power Rangers was getting up in the morning, watching it before school, on mornings, on some mornings, along with like Sonic the Hedgehog, the one that was voiced by Julio White, mm-hmm. Urkel. But that's a different story. So, you know, I am familiar with Power Rangers. I'd say the first maybe couple seasons, which I can't believe is over 20 years ago. Also, by the way, for those who don't know really super quick, there's a whole history of Power Rangers. And it's very confusing as to how the footage comes from a Japanese show. And then the American actors and actresses were filmed. The scenes were made to fit the original Japanese show which I dare say still goes to today and I think it's kind of in that whole realm and universe of kaiju if I'm not mistaken I know know, I mean super sentai or the sentai I don't know what the term is the sentai and and you'll want to check out an angry video game nerd video he did on that within the last month he does a whole breakdown two parts he hadn't watched it when he was younger he did all this research he went through and watched all the Power Rangers episodes and everything and explains it he can do a lot better job than i have just now in that 30 second segment but to answer your question so not a super huge fan so uh my expectations were low middle of the road i would say if you're if you were a fan you probably want to check it out just to maybe say you checked it out i don't think the movie was bad it's certainly an origin story, and I believe, if I remember correctly, this is supposed to be the first in a series of six movies. Wow, really? I, that's what I thought I heard, so I'm going off memory. So you're going to get a lot of background story. It does kind of fit the universe in the sense of, like, it's nice to flesh out the characters. Double-edged sword. I don't want to sound like uh, Mr. ADD, but I will echo what many others have said. They could have gotten to some of the action maybe a little bit sooner. It does do a build. Once the action comes, it's not. It's certainly not bad. You know, some people had conflicting thoughts on Rita Repulsa. Some thought she did a good job. Some thought it just wasn't right. It's not bad enough to where you will feel like you don't want to see a sequel and you're done. I think it's to the point where... You feel like you want to give it one more chance because the sequel can fix a lot of things and there's some potential. I think the biggest, one of the biggest downfalls is the design is reminiscent of the Michael Bay Transformers to an extent. A couple things look pretty cool, but that design is just, you know. I feel like it has not, that I feel like everything is like just over designed now. Yes. Like everything has to have so much complex like I, I think another complaint I have of this is if you watch the Justice League trailer and you see kinda of like Cyborg's look, like I feel like he's just so over designed. Yeah, I don't know what the deal with that is. I don't know what um you know 
I also have to keep in mind, you know, the source material. It's not like, you know, it was over 20 years ago. And you've got a new audience, so I respect that and understand that. But... I don't know. Just... I don't know what I'm trying to say right now. It's just... um. Yeah, they either overthink things or sometimes they're too afraid to... Like, I understand that CG is prevalent now and you're going to get a lot of that. But it's like, why wouldn't you, you know, kind of play with what you have and with what Power Rangers is. And, like, even if you had some just different type of costume or, you know, monster setups. or I don't know, just some, spice it up a little bit and stay true to it a little bit more. Mm. You know, I understand we're in 2017 now and you don't want to put something out that looks 1993. But I do think there's a little bit, like, you got to figure a lot of Power Rangers fans are going to go see it and a lot of them from back in the day. So it's like, you know, why not, why not throw them a bone or two and then keep them happy? And so... You know, if I had to score the movie and I might be being generous, I'm going to give it somewhere around a six. Wow. Logan, um, Logan was good. It's rated R. I'm not a Wolverine expert. I'm familiar with the comics a bit, familiar with more with the nineties, you know, uh, x-men comics a little bit and when it just comes to the art style and stuff i always like how capcom portrayed them in the in their x-men games but that's a totally different animal i need to make very clear that's comics video games movies totally different mediums and that's not fair that's not a fair comparison i'm just saying i do like the character Uh, i have seen the other two movies in the series i'm going to give you a little wiki note i had this typed up you ready for this Logan is the 10th installment in the X-Men series. It's the third installment in the Wolverine franchise. So this is technically the 10th movie within the X-Men universe. I thought it was good. Um, I know a lot of people loved that they'd let him loose and it was rated R. And I mean, let me tell you something. The F-bombs were aplenty. <laughs> Foul language and violence. Now, here's the thing. I'm the type of person, you know what? I'm all for it. And I'm not trying to knock it for this. But here's my thing. I'm going to use Deadpool as a comparison. Deadpool is foul-mouthed, funny, disgusting, over-the-top, crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And that movie didn't... I I almost... I think Deadpool was my favorite movie of 2016. Hmm. I don't know if I... I got to think about that. Because Rogue One did come out right at the tail end of the year. But I, Deadpool was up there for me. But here's the thing. That was rated R, and it was meant to be. It needed to be. Right. Right? I know the rated R aspect has the Wolverine character let loose more and I think brings out that side of him but at the same time it's like did he need to be that rated R does that make sense now when you say that do you mean like in terms of language or violence or because I was saying in terms of violence like I almost feel like I Yes. Yes. Okay. Because I'm with you. Because I I, I kind of feel that, like, up until now, when you have this, like, just maniac fighter who has, like, these sharp claws coming out of his hands, like, that he would be more of a down and dirty, brutal kind of fighter. And we've never really seen that in the movies. I'm with you. He's always felt, like, just so neutered in how he fights. 
I agree. Yeah, and I, and this is so weird coming from me because I can sometimes have the biggest potty mouth, but like then like with the language and stuff, I'm like, you know, do you know were they doing that just because they had the freedom and let loose, or right. did they really feel that it added to the character in a way that it was necessary and it was meaningful? I think that's the issue I had. Right. So hey, I'm a big fan of Scarface. You know, Al Pacino movie. That's one. I mean, I, I don't know how many f bombs are in that movie. <laughs> Two hundred. But the point is, is like that fits that's a certain type of character, and it's a certain type, you know, certain mm-hmm. type of message you're trying to get across. You know, did Logan, did Logan need that? I don't know. I'm interested to hear if any fans saw it, or if they think I'm completely wrong, or if I'm like I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But um, and then I saw the new Deadpool trailer as well. I thought it started off the first section of it was pretty good. I'm not gonna lie. Then it kind of, I don't know. Is this the one where he's in the phone booth? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of that? I mean, I think it's like it's. I think it's a certain kind of joke that I can understand why you wouldn't appreciate it. But I think it's just it's it's the kind of like I think back to not that I'm a Family Guy fan at all, but there's the um. The joke where he like kind of falls and like hurts his knee mm-hmm. and it's just like it's so drawn out that i think it's like it's funny and then it stops being funny because it's just it's it's lasting way too long <laughs> and then it lasts longer so it kind of becomes funny again just because of like how ridiculously long it is so i think it's like that kind of joke it's just is right. is it was done in a way that it's supposed to just be funny and then not funny because it's taking too long and then it's funny again there's I won't I won't mention this person's name. I'll tell you off the air actually. But there's someone I talked to and we talked about the trailer and I told him I thought the trailer was pretty good is what I said, right? But this individual was like, "Really?" He goes, "You thought you thought it was funny? Like you thought it was okay when Deadpool sat on the guy that got shot and like while he bled out?" And I'm not trying to sound like some sort of sick ass, but you know, I, my excuse was, I'm like, well, it's Deadpool. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I wasn't like a cheap cop out. I'm like, well, that's, you know. And this person felt it was uncomfortable and didn't like it. What was your take on that? Well, see, so yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you asked me this because there's, um, there's this internet or kind of like, like little like commercial spoof called Nap Time. Okay. And it's, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. So if, so just, you either go watch it's called nap time um go watch that and then like fast forward this like you know 20 seconds or so and then come back and listen uh but it's basically this the idea is it's an infomercial about what do you do when you have like kids who are just being complete brats and won't shut up and you just you're a parent and you're just worn out and you just need some you know rest and relaxation and you can't take your whining kids anymore and it's almost like this just miracle new product called called nap time. And what it literally is is a spray bottle and it's just chloroform. And so you spray it onto a <laughs> a uh you know, handkerchief or something and then put it over your kid's mouth until they like get knocked out, you know, and it's right. this, it's this big joke. And it was funny to me because I watched it and I just thought it was like the funniest thing in the world. Um but then I was watching a few like reactions to it, and there's some people watching it who were just like horrified. Mm. You know, and like I cannot believe that they would make this a joke. It's not funny. And so I think I have a kind of weird sense of humor. Right. Um, and so I, I, I think like in that situation, it's kind of like that just dark humor that some people 
just can't stand, you know, with the Deadpool thing. Mm. It's just because it is a very like a dark thing, you know, because the poor guy's dead and then he's just like laying on him and like eating his ice cream and stuff. I thought it was hilarious, you know, because like you kind of said, like yeah, that is what Deadpool would do, right? But yeah, there's just some people who just can't stand that kind of dark humor. So, mm. well, next time we uh, discuss a little bit of movies, my intention is to see Ghosts in the Shell tomorrow. So, uh... oh. <laughs> I don't know that much hey, for that. At, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be good. At the very least, uh, the very end of the day, if nothing else, there's Scarlett Johansson. So yeah. I've got that going for it. But that aside, as we wrap up GVGP26, uh, do you have the piece of fan mail, which I'm hoping is praising us, and it's not even a question to answer, just telling us uh, how much they love us? Uh, right. Wait, where'd it go? I had it. Okay, what time did you like? Okay. Uh, lady and gentlemen... Uh, are we in the midst of the greatest gaming year ever? To quickly reflect, amazing PS4 console exclusives. And I think that's one of the things that needs to be brought up, by the way, is, I mean, obviously there's Zelda out there, you know, so it's not just PS4. But when we talk about, like, how many great games have come out this year, like, 95% of them are PS4 games. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are PS4 exclusives. So, uh, amazing PS4 console exclusives, including, but not limited to, Neo, Near Horizon, Yakuza, Tales of Berezia, and Gravity Rush 2, alongside Resident Evil 7's revitalizing the franchise, Ghost Recon being received better than imagined, which that, that was true. Um, a completely new Mass Effect, which this was this email I think came in before we found out about Mass Effect. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, For Honor, Snipper Clips, and apparently, though still early, one of the greatest games ever made in Zelda Breath of the Wild. <clears throat> and it's March. We're two and a half months, ten weeks into 2017 for perspective just with the games i've listed we're getting over one per week on average 5.8 days a game i know this won't continue but damn what a time to be a gamer i do struggle with the stress of feeling like i'm missing out on games because i simply don't have the time for it all um prioritizing yakuza then i think hitting neo eventually zelda but i do tip my cap to the industry clearly hitting its stride right now especially out of japan my first and one true love. Are you guys surprised at all? Feel any anxiety over missing out uh, or a pull to play seven different games at once? Another thing to consider, if Nintendo delivers strong with Mario Galaxy and Red Dead Redemption 2 is what people hope it will be, we will have at least three games that individually could be game of the year, beating all games in certain years past, with two on the Switch. Also, unrelated to gaming... Well, let's, let's go to that first, and then we'll get to unrelated to gaming. Um... I mean, we've talked about this before, you know, but I think the kind of like his saying like the kind of the um, stress of missing games, like mm-hmm. I usually don't feel that, but I kind of do feel that. And I think part of the reason is, is because I've hit so many of these games that if I had just only done one or two, I'd be okay, whatever. I'm just missing games like I always miss games. Right. But I've I have hit so many of the games so far this this beginning of this year that I do feel like I really need to play the rest of them too. You know, like I haven't touched Resident Evil 7 yet, which I do have a copy of that. Um, I haven't touched Horizon yet. You know, I haven't touched Yakuza. And I think I think part of what's making this, this year so stressful, whereas other years haven't been as bad, is because there's been so many games already this year that have been great. Right. I think mentally we're thinking every month's going to be like this. 
And so you're getting the mindset of, oh my God, I'm going to be so buried, you know, come December. Which I don't think that's going to be the case. Like, I think summer again is going to be a kind of a lull. But then again, we don't know for sure. Well, I mean, you know, we've got E3 coming up. So there's going to be at least some surprises there. Um, I don't envision myself buying as many Western titles this holiday as I have the last couple of years. Part of that's because of the kind of this little resurgence in Japanese games, and it's not me being discriminatory. It's just that I feel the last couple of holidays I gave some more Western stuff a chance, and, I, and I'm actually happy I have. I diversified out a bit because um, just either stuff from Japan or stuff I was really interested in either got bumped till the following year, like first quarter. Um, I, I even played Call of Duty a couple times the last couple of years because I'm into the futuristic sci-fi stuff. Um, not a knock here, but I've heard they might be going back to World War II for this year. I, that's I know, that's, I that's what it seems like, yeah. So here's the thing for me. I'm just speaking for myself and this, hey, awesome for them and I get it. But like if, if that happens, that definitely will not be on my list. Um, you know, we've got the Switch going. We'll see what Microsoft does with Scorpio. I really don't see, unless that thing may, I'm going to clean up my language, unless that thing makes me breakfast, cleans the apartment, and drives me to work. I can't see getting in on that this year, but I think there's so much stuff that I'm backlogged on right now, and I know there will be stuff between now and then that I pick up, that I'm actually not too incredibly worried about the holidays, because I know there's some fat that I'll be trimming. Because I won't be making similar decisions that I have the last couple of years with Western titles. A lot of that was to try some stuff, to see what everyone else is playing, what all the hoopla is about. And it was just, I always cite it down to timing. So the timing was right then for me to like try stuff like Fallout. You know, maybe a new Call of Duty, which I normally never buy that stuff. But this year with what we have so far, I have no reason to test those waters uh there's red dead i know a ton of people that are going to be playing it i'm sure that's going to be right up there for game of the year i i I may get that down the road but i don't see myself buying that this year either because there's too much stuff and i got to pick and choose and like i like you just rattled off a whole bunch of stuff that you haven't touched and we're a few months in. We still got <clears throat> more than half a year left. I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, I know I'm going to pick up. I'm going to give ARMS a shot because it's a new IP. I hope I don't regret that. And I'm going to give uh, Splatoon 2. I'm going to want that this summer. And in June, I don't know if you saw this, but I think I might do. It's going to be 40 bucks to wipe out Omega Collection. Yep. And then once we get into the fall... What do we got in the fall that I'm looking forward to? I mean, like I said, E3 is going to change a lot of things. Uh, you know, we do have Mario, and I am a Mar- you know somewhat of a Mario fan, but I'm not like I'm not like losing sleep over Odyssey. I, I can like here's the thing: I want I want Nintendo to have a nice Christmas, and I want them to keep their momentum because you know I want them to, the system to, to do well. Mm-hmm. But like if that thing got bumped to 2018, I wouldn't be like, you know, there goes my holiday. I'm pissed. Right. Um. And then this summer, actually, a game that did get bumped from May, but it's now summer because they want to put the game out how they want to put it out in the right way, Sonic uh, Mania. Yeah. So Sonic Mania is over the summer. we got Tekken 7 the first week of June. 
I want to get that for the character models alone because, and even though that game is technically a couple years old arcade wise, everyone keeps telling me the act, the character models you got to see in person they look phenomenal. So I want to give that a crack. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just so many angles, like whether it be fighting games, Japanese games, or you know, the other stuff. If, if people are into the more mainstream Western stuff coming the end of the year, you got to pick and choose at some point. And like, there's no way, like, there's no way I'm going to be through everything that. I've got right now between January and April by the end of the year. Yeah. With, you know, a full-time job, living life. My my anxiety comes from, I wish I was rich, could sit home all day with, uh, you know, <laughs> a maid serving me my meals and coffee at my side. And then I could just go at my leisure and have no excuses and no worries. But when you got to work and do things, uh, I don't know if we've said this on the show, but it's one of those things when you're a kid... You know, you have more time or all the time in the world to play games, but you don't have any money to buy them. And then when you're an adult, you can earn some money and kind of buy more things, but then you don't have the time anymore. When I was a kid, I remember bitching. Like, I, I was like, why can't they make more games? You know, we need more yes. games. I want to play more games. And now I'm just like, stop <laughs> making games. Stop making them. There's too many. Like, I can't keep up. Um, I mean, like, good, good Lord. Like, okay, Gravity Rush 2 neo near persona 5 like just for, for me personally a personal like top list of the year that could be four out of five five slots already i'm yeah. like on my top five and that's crazy to me that we're, we're just getting over march and that i could have four of my five slots already filled um but you made a really good point is is <clears throat> that i think this is going to be a year <clears throat> potentially where more people miss out on Take a chance games, you know, because when there's not a lot of games out there that you care about, that that's when you're more likely to say, I was kind of curious about that one. I'll pick it up, mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, that's why that's why I played Overwatch is because. Yeah, and that worked out. Yeah, we both love that. So that was good. That was right place, right time. Yeah. Great and, game. And that's why I played like The Division, you know, yep. Um. Because they were just like, you know what? There's not a lot out there right now. I'll just go ahead and try this out. And I ended up loving it. But I think, like, I, I can't believe this, this world exists. But it could actually be a case of me not playing the new Mass Effect, like, anytime soon. And I love that series. Mass Effect 1 is the game that got me to finally like Western RPGs. And, I mean, part of it is because of the bad things I'm hearing about it. But... Like, there's enough games now where I'm like, I, you know, I might not even get to Mass Effect this year. And that's, like, crazy to me. No, I, I know what you mean. It's And here's the thing. I've said this before, and it's not a knock. I think I said it last episode. I'm so happy I'm not a Mass Effect fan. Two reasons. One less game for me to want to buy, and whatever slights on it don't affect me. But I do feel bad for the... Mass Effect loyalists and fans. I mean, I don't have any ill will or wish anything like that because I know what it's like to have a franchise. I love go through ups and downs, and it sucks. So yeah. that's not me wishing anything bad, but I'm just happy personally that I've never given that series a shot firsthand, and it's not on my list, thank God. And the reason I make a statement like that, well, let's reverse the table. Let's say none of these games that we just mentioned came out and Japan wasn't having the resurgence right now in 2017. Let's say Mass Effect was the only big title coming out so far this year and nothing again till summer. You know what? I would have looked at it. Yeah. 
but I could care less right now. You know what I mean? But it's all about that timing thing. You could, now, for me, now I know the hardcore Yakuza fans got and got Yakuza. That's awesome. I'll use Yakuza, uh, Yakuza as an example. Zero. If all those other games didn't come out or Yakuza was placed, let's say, in May or July for me, personally, I might have picked it up right away. But I couldn't. But we had Resident Evil 7 and Gravity Rush 2 days apart from it and then leading up to February with all the other releases you just said. Well, and I mean, like, and, and uh, so this email's from Aaron, and two of the games he lists on here, um, For Honor, for example, I actually was really interested in, and I really wanted to play, but I don't, I don't have time, like, I, like cause especially, that's a, especially because that's a multiplayer game, like, mm-hmm. I can't think about even getting into that right now, because if I even cleared off my slate of all the games I do want to play, then I still have games I need to go back to and finish and stuff like that, Um. And Tales of Berezia, or Berseria, Berezia, Berseria. I've actually heard it's a really, really good Tales game. And so if I was going to give Tales a chance, that's probably one of the games I would use to try to give it a chance. But again, I can't even contemplate playing an RPG right now. <laughs> because if I got through everything I need to get through right now, and then I'm going to need to get through soon, I still got Resident Evil 7 that he has on his list. There's Yakuza on his list that I'm curious about. There's Horizon on his list that I'm really curious about. You know, there's just too much. There's Zelda at some point. I mean, that'll be next year. I'm not going to wait till I get a Switch then, but there's just, there's so much. And yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that the Japanese resurgence, if you want to call it that, happened in this like two and a half month window. <laughs> because it's, it started with Last Guardian and Final Fantasy that's 15. right. Yeah, and it, it's ago. kind of it's not ending, but it's coming to a nice cap with Persona Five, mm. and just somehow, like like we said earlier, all the stars aligned that all these games hit in this little period. And I mean, remember when Q one was the, the the slow time of the year? Yeah, I remember. I don't know how many years ago it is now, but like the big one was like Anarchy Reigns coming out. Yeah. You know, for like 30 bucks. Or I miss so much. Oh my God, I miss that game so much. I, that's, yeah. oh. uh, so finally, he says, also unrelated to gaming, if you could have any animal as a domesticated pet, which would you pick? Mine would be the silverback gorilla. Ooh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. <laughs> that would be a little bit scary, I, I, I think. I, that, was, that is not on... My list. Not that I have. Not that I don't think it's a nice animal, nice looking animal or whatever. But God, I don't want the thought of that going to bed or apart. being around the house. Yeah, like <laughs> crushing my skull or killing me in the middle of the night or like throwing me through the wall and just busting me up. Yeah, that's not on my list. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll, while you think, I'll, I'll say that I think um, <laughs> most realistic answer would be a fox. As far as that foxes would be interesting. Uh, Semi realistic answer. I'm going to say a capybara. What is that? The the you have to look them up. Like it's hard to explain. It's like a giant rat in a way, but a really cute rat. <laughs> um, but they're they're really cool. But supposedly they smell very bad. Oof. Which is which oof. is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then getting super out of uh, logic, I would say a cheetah. That would be cool. Yeah, I mean that thing could you know it'll. Eat us for dinner, but 
and and I'm, I'm not cool. a Saudi Arabian baller, so I can't have a cheetah <laughs> you know, in my Lamborghini or anything. Uh, what would I do? Um, I mean, my first answer, this isn't for me, but like, you know, probably because of the girlfriend or whatever. I'd probably do a sloth. Is she into but, sloths? Well, I know she'd probably. Well, I know what she would want if she could have any. I, she's an animal lover. She's an animal fanatic. As a matter of fact, um, her favorite animal is a giraffe. Oh. But I know she likes sloths. As a matter of fact, she was showing me a place actually in Oregon a couple hours away. You ready for this? You spend a couple hundred bucks and then you can like spend the night in this specialized area with sloths or whatever. <laughs> but anyway. Well, the reason I'm laughing is because there's uh, on BuzzFeed, there's a video I uh-huh. watched on BuzzFeed's video thing. Um there's a girl on there who loves like loves sloths and mm-hmm. so one of her co-workers like rented a sloth and brought it into their office and like surprised her with it oh really so, like I, I, I was not used to hearing about like like girls liking sloths so that's yeah that's i don't know it it's like a big yeah but uh for myself um I don't know. I've really never put a lot of thought into something like that. You know, I don't know why. You know, koalas are kind of cool. Yeah. Like a little koala bear or something like that. I do like, uh, you know, here's the thing. If it stayed a baby forever, you know, like a little tiger. Mm. But, you know, but that, it would have to be some specialized thing where it stays at like three months old or something. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, I'm, 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 a- I'm assuming like that in this, in this, Question: You're not like living in your current apartment, so I happen to have a tiger in there. Like, I got it. Let me tell you something though. This is realistic. There's an old set of neighbors that used to be a couple doors down, and look, I, I don't want people to misconstrue. There's some people that think I hate animals or whatever. I don't. It's just I, you know, the way I live and live like a bachelor or whatever. But I've never harmed an animal, and I've dog sat, and people trust me with their dogs. But I just don't currently own any pets. I've had pets over the years, but a set of neighbors I had. It was the first time in years where I ever looked at something and I'm like, wow, like for a fleeting moment, I'm like, you know what? That would be kind of cool to have. And I'm not that type of person. You know what I mean? It could be the cutest dog or the cutest cat. And I'm just like, you know what? That thing's got to eat crap and be taken <laughs> care of. You know, 20, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I don't know what this was, but it was the special. And I actually asked them about it and they had this like cat. I know you would have loved it. But it was large, like it was some sort of weird hybrid. Oh, oh, um, uh, 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 oh my God, I'm forgetting. It, I think it must have been like a thousand, uh, could have been a thousand or two thousand dollars, something like that, somewhere in there. No, I know it's like it's got spots and it 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 kind of acts more like a dog than a cat. But in it's some ways. yeah, it's larger than your standardized yeah. cat, and it's oh really my God, cool. what are those called? I know, I know yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, they had that. A Bengal. You see that maybe. Yeah, I think so. Have you seen them in person? No, yeah, I've I've met one. Yeah, they're said so it's it's funny because I mean they're still cats and they act like cats in some ways, but they also act like dogs in some ways too. Really? And they're 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 bigger, and they're much stronger than a regular cat, and they tend to just kind of like do whatever they want. So that that might be my official answer, even though you can't. They are domesticated. You can have them. That was the last pet in recent years that I saw that I was like, you know what. I, oh, and I also like um, yeah, Bengal. What's the? Uh, I'm going to sound like the biggest idiot. The name is escaping me. The dogs that Sniper Wolf has. 
the uh wolf well no what's the other one i'm thinking of it's like the sled dog too what the hell is that husky yeah the the huskies are nice too yeah like i've always liked um was it shiba inus but i've heard that they're they're kind of little brats (laughs) and you have to train them very well Hmm. otherwise they'll like just run all over you (laughs) how many cats do you have just one just one yeah how old is uh the cat well, we don't know for certain because when we we kind of just rescued <clears throat> him, and but at the time, the that gave us an approximation of age. So we think he was born two thousand five. So he's mm. twelve this year. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Hmm. Well, cool. Well, that was kind of an interesting uh, email. Yeah. And as always, as we wrap it up here and do our sign-off here for GVGP26, thanking everyone for tuning in. What's the email address one more time for fan mail if anyone has any questions or comments? It is GVGP at morningproject.com. And it is always in the show notes. So if you don't remember that, just look at the notes and that's where it's at. Or you can also, of course, you can tweet either one of us. You can tweet uh, our Twitter account. Because my DMs are open, the Twitter, the morning radio Twitter accounts DMs are open. So, awesome. Yeah, give us any questions, comments, what you'd like to hear. And uh, with that being said, uh, next time I'll probably have my little mini review of Ghost in the Shell. We'll talk about whatever games we're playing. I'll have played Persona Five a bit by then. I do plan to can play more of Near and Zelda. I'm at about thirty hours in Zelda, about six on Near. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for Molly for taking the time once again, doing all the editing magic and uh, getting it uploaded for the online space and hosting. So with that, thank you again, listeners, and we'll catch you soon.